11. <laughs> is it a season 11? I thought it was season 12. Season I definitely 11. said it was 12. The That's other okay. Day. That's okay. <laughs> 10 was bangers. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even notice that. I read your whole post. And <laughs> Nobody knows what season it is. No. Season 11. <laughs> Can't believe we've made it this far. No. Can't believe you're still listening to us. I know. <laughs> um, but this season, Katie and I are doing something different. Ah, it's so exciting. We're not telling each other who we are researching. Yeah. So I honestly have been thinking about it a lot more because usually I look it up early in the week and I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, this is who Katie's doing. And then like, I kind of think of some talking points. Right. Already out of yeah. the gate. It's like, okay, I know they're from here. So like, maybe that's kind of similar between them, but this time it's really going straight off the cuff. Like we have no idea. Totally blind. <laughs> totally blind. So it's going to be really, really fun. Um, I know I've picked a, a lot of like, well-known people that I really thought we haven't done yet and we should and you picked a lot of like not well-known people yes um and it's cool too because I we both put like a list together gave it to producer and he goes yeah you don't have anyone that's the same couldn't believe it couldn't believe it out of 15 women (laughs) that's unbelievable (laughs) it is so there's 30 separate women this mm-hmm. season, just like every season. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it with the Susan B. Anthony episode, how us and I mean, everybody else was like, I can't believe you haven't done her yet. I know. And then I have to remind myself, there's like a lot of women. Yes. <laughs> yes, like, there are. Just as many as men. <laughs> and I actually, you know what I used to make my list was one of the Secret Santa gifts that I got or Secret Sandra, Sandra Day O'Connor gifts oh, I got last wow. year. Yeah. My Secret Sandra gave me um a book of like you know like a hundred women who changed history and I hadn't heard about a lot of them so I was like it's a fantastic resource (laughs) that's cool yeah so but anyways I mean I usually say we're not here to talk about whatever we're talking about but we really are. We really are here to talk about exactly like that. Um, because this is her story. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. It's a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. No. <laughs> so if you're sitting around and you're about to ring in the new year with us because it's the 30th. <gasps> Right now when you're listening to this, um, you're welcome Mm -hmm. (laughs) for all of our incorrect facts, which Mm -hmm. I'm sure there will be some. Many. (laughs) In fact, we had a correction (gasps) on Twitter, a really, really kind correction um, that the St. Louis Arch was not built for the St. Louis State Fair. Oh. So now we know. It was like the gateway to the West type deal. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Like next to the Mississippi. Because we said that when we were trashing it, when we were talking about the (laughs) Chicago. Lame it is. (laughs) And they were like, um, excuse me. Super polite. That's my favorite type of correction. It was funny because I kind of thought that at the time. I was like, doesn't it have like an elevator in it? Like like goes to the top? It does. You get inside an egg and it takes you up. If you're claustrophobic, I definitely... Would not recommend. Yeah. But if you're not, it was great. Is it like the Hershey Kiss Tower at Hershey Park? Where um, it's like... But even smaller, and then you get to the top, and the windows are, like, very tiny. Oh. But it's very cool. Oh, okay. I don't know. <laughs> it was where I liked it when I was there, but I always thought it was built for the World Fair. Look yeah. at me. I'm wrong. Well, if you are listening to our podcast at the top of the St. Louis Arch, <laughs> and, you know, you're looking at that little window, you don't want to divert your eyes just to look up what these women look like. No, you've been in line for hours. For hours. <laughs> So we don't want to distract you by having you look up what these women look like. So we're going to describe them for you. We're going to get a little physical, physical, 
Okay, so tell me what your woman looks like, and I'm going to try and guess off of the physical description. Okay, you'll <laughs> definitely, definitely really? guess. Okay, I think so. Okay, this is a young girl who was a Puritan. She has probably worn conservative or modest clothing her entire life in neutral colors. Any gown with a low neckline in Puritan American colonies would be filled with a high-necked collar or like a scarf. Married women would wear a linen cap on their head. This specific girl was 11 years old, and we don't have an exact description of what she looked like. We do, however, have a caricature of her that was depicted as a strikingly beautiful black-haired teenager portrayed by the beautiful Winona Ryder. Is this... Uh, what's her face? Uh, are you doing a fictional character? Is this Hester Prynne? Nope. I have no idea. Same area. <laughs> Massachusetts. So is, you're talking about... So are you talking about someone involved in, like, the Salem witch trials? Yes! Okay. <laughs> I'm so ashamed that, like, I don't know their names. Yeah. Okay, so no, who, what is... What is her name? Abigail Williams. Abigail is Williams. the Winona Ryder <gasps> accuser character. Oh my gosh. So that's who I'm, I'm doing. <laughs> I was like, wow, so bold to start off with Hester Prynne. <laughs> Fictional character. Little baby Rose. <laughs> Shout out to that episode. <laughs> <laughs> Forgot about Marjorie was not having it with no. us. <laughs> we, we did a, a round table all about the Scarlet Letter with Sister Marjorie. At the end of season two. <laughs> and it was bananas. <laughs> it was. Okay, so I know I'm not going to be able to guess your person. No. So you just won't. Description, <laughs> and then I'll take a wild guess. Okay, she was a French Jewish woman who was five three, but because she was extremely thin, I mean, people often described her as a very tall broomstick kind of woman. Um, they thought she was a lot taller than she actually was. Oh, she had red curly hair, thin lips, wide almond shaped eyes, and fair skin. In her day, she could be seen in very elaborate costumes such as Joan of Arc, Cleopatra, and Hamlet. <laughs> and sometimes she could be seen laying very dramatically in her personal coffin. <laughs> she slept in a coffin? We'll get to it. But wow. <laughs> um, okay, so this is a French Jewish actress, with, yes. stage actress, uh -huh. with curly red hair. Yeah. Her name is Sarah Bernhardt, which I had never heard of. And apparently she was like the first international celebrity. Her story is really fun. I can't wait to get to it. But yeah, I'm doing Sarah Bernhardt. It reminds me of when we did that book interview with the woman who did like the first um, Charlotte like, Cushman. Yeah, yes, Charlotte I bring Cushman. her up in my story. Oh, great. Because they were contemporaries. Oh, neat. Yeah, so while Charlotte Cushman was being the first celebrity here in America, she uh, Sarah was being the first international celebrity oh, who was cool. like going abroad. It's very cool. I love that. Okay, so Abigail and Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> very traditional girls' names. <laughs> Honestly, very biblical. Very biblical here today. Um, and we're going to go deep into the Bible on my All right. <laughs> okay, so do you want to know what you're drinking? I do. It looks so cute. This is called the Afflicted's Potion. Mm. And it is orange juice, triple sec, one maraschino cherry, white rum, and lemon juice, and rosemary. Ooh. So, cheers. Cheers. 
Oh, mm. I love this. This is really refreshing. It's so nice. And I was actually thinking about this today because I thought about putting mint on my cocktail. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, God, but I don't like my mint plant dyed because it's winter. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. I like don't have it anymore. And I'm too lazy to buy it at the store. Right. Um, but I was thinking about how um, I miss fresh herbs in our cocktail. So this yeah. is perfect. And it's so delicious. Especially because you think it's going to taste like a screwdriver and it does not at all. Not at all. Mm. And I just, I liked, I wanted to throw some herbs and things in there just to give it a little bit of like a witchy potion vibe. Absolutely. Okay. So tell me what you know about (laughs) the Salem witch trials. Okay. So I know that it was kind of this phenomena in uh, Salem, Massachusetts, where there was a lot of accusations of witchcraft. Um, and I don't know if this is part of it, but I know that like throughout history, women have been accused of witchcraft and sorcery and like having sex with the devil, um, because as kind of like a plot, because for a lot, like when people start to draw away from the church, that's one of the tactics they use to get people back in. Cause it's a lot easier to prove that the devil is real than that God is real in a, in a weird kind of fucked up way. Yeah. Like it's like. Oh, well, like, if we can just prove that, like, witches are real and the Satan's out to get you, then we can also prove, therefore, that God is here to save you. So I don't know if that was part of it, if people were pulling away from the church and that's why this all happened. Um, But, yeah, I know that, like, some women were killed, burned at the stake for this. Um, Mm. And for some reason, Salem is where it was happening. (laughs) (laughs) Salem is a very interesting little pocket. And I'm so excited to talk about it because I learned a lot. When I did this research, I I think there was more involved in the Salem witch trials than I realized. Like yeah. politically and religiously and socially, there was a lot more going on than just like a little town that had some accusations, which is very cool. Also, I just realized you said she was 11 when this was happening. Ding, ding, ding. Oh my God. This is a big, big, and we'll talk about the difference between Arthur Miller's play, the crucible and the actual Abigail Williams, because I think it's become so popular as a play because it's a wonderfully written play, Mm -hmm. but it's fictionalized to fit his story. Right. Okay. Which he says, like he openly says that, but there are also things he put in the play that he's like, no, I did research and I actually believe this is what happened. But then there's some facts that he changes. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's confusing to like amateur Salem people. Yeah. So I do want to start by saying, uh, I went to Salem a couple years ago with my family and I'd always been really interested in the Salem witch trials. And I think the town does an amazing the town and the village because Salem village and Salem town are separate. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they do an amazing job of making it playful and serious at the same time. Mm -hmm. They have like statues of like, I dream a genie. Wait, the girl, the girl, Samantha from the witch. Yeah. Yeah, And they like, they have all these really cute, cute things. And apparently at Halloween, it is like dolled up. But then also because we don't know where these people are buried, there's a beautiful memorial with all of the names of the people who were murdered. All of them. So there was like a ton. There was, there were, there were hundreds of people thrown in jail. Okay. And on four hands murdered. Wow. So I also want to say that I don't want to take this in like a lighthearted sense because it's such an interesting story because it was 
institutionalized murder. Like mm-hmm. it was government sanctioned murder of innocent people. Yeah. So that's important. To well, say. and I think we can call it like institutionalized like sexism too. Yeah. Because it seems to be like mainly against women. Mainly women. So when I looked it up in Europe and the United States, 78% of the people accused of witchcraft were women which Hmm. is like that's well above half right so occasionally it was men but not as often okay all right so my source is there's this great ted ed uh youtube video video called what really happened it's only like seven minutes and it's a cartoon and that was great but then i was really looking for abigail williams specifically i will mention um obviously the dozens and dozens of women and girls and men men that are involved in this but my story is kind of focused around her so i read this um awesome article called the mysterious afflicted girl and then i found this great youtube video that looks like it was made for a college class called the first accuser so that's where we're gonna go with this (laughs) excellent let's go in puritan society this is in new england it's called the massachusetts bay colony it's still a part of England Mm -hmm. proper, the United Kingdoms, Great Britain, whatever. So women were really excluded from decision-making in town meetings and in the church. Puritan ministers furthered this male supremacy by writing this into their sermons. We know that Eve is the original sin, and that's a a big issue with a lot of monotheistic religions Mm -hmm. is that the women are seen as, like, more susceptible to sin than men. So... Because of this, women were seen as inherently sinful and more susceptible to damnation. So Puritan women actively attempted to thwart this. They were working daily to fend off the devil by mm-hmm. reading the scripture twice a day, etc. Um, and something as small as having a fight with your neighbor or AKA showing anger, you could get accused of witchcraft right. or like the devil. Mm-hmm. Well, Chil- that's wrath. That's a sin. Yes. Wrath is, is one of the seven deadly yeah. sins. <laughs> <laughs> Children were also treated really harshly in the Puritan Commonwealth and viewed as instruments of Satan. They were regarded obviously as property of their parents, but also that because they were born with this original sin, they had to kind of, it had to kind of be beaten out of them or like willed out of them. So they could be punished for anything, including up to 10 lashes. <gasps> like the children would be beaten by a magistrate in the town if they were breaking the law. Um, so Puritan parents are really, really strict to say the least. And they're not letting their children get away with anything. Okay. In terms of witchcraft in the late 1600s, which is when this is set, witch hunts are dying down in Europe. Okay. They were going on in Europe for hundreds of years. And there's a lot of backstories on that about, so when King, when Queen Elizabeth the first died, her cousin King James took over and he had written this book about witchcraft, like to try to help it like spurred the murders of thousands and oh thousands of people in all of the British Isles, Scotland, Ireland, etc. But um it was dying down over there, but on the very, very like outskirts of Europe and then also in the colonies, which we were still technically an outskirt right. of Europe. People were still doing this practice of going after witches. The events in Salem were a very, very brief outburst of this hysteria, but also one of the most famous in the United States because it was bonkers. 
the way that it happened. So the earliest recorded execution of a witch in New England was 1647. That was in Connecticut. But as we know, it had been happening for thousands of years Mm -hmm. across the world. And also, I kind of have a really big problem with this like men that come into contact with magic like king arthur like i can pull the stone from the rock they're seen as glorious Mm -hmm. but a woman that does anything supernatural it's like kill her yeah exactly i don't (laughs) i what is that i think it's the idea that like god has ordained men to be in charge so like if there's something working that's otherworldly in a woman it must be the devil because god didn't put woman in charge he put man so i think it's like well it can't be this so it must be this right (laughs) because or situation because if you admitted like a joan of arc situation that like a woman was touched by god and a woman was meant to lead then like that would go against your core beliefs Mm. you know and so again if you admit that god calls upon women to do anything but be submissive then that just fucks up your whole doctrine doctrine and your the way you've built your society so you will do anything to not admit that Mm. i don't know if that's true but that would be what i would gather from it yeah theology majors get at me that's interesting (laughs) yes theology (laughs) um i'll take one from flotus uh forever right now and say somebody please google what is religion (laughs) anytime they have a religion thing that's what they say i think it's really cute okay so also i want to address something you said earlier in europe they burned witches they did the puritans did not do that okay interesting they hung witches and i heard on one podcast that they didn't want like the public nudity of burning a witch because <laughs> their clothes would burn off first mm-hmm. oh my god so that's what i heard somewhere but i did not verify that fact but it sounds right so let's okay it, now you've heard it in two places sure. it's back now <laughs> so here's the political context of salem there's a lot going on in new england that i didn't know about obviously these people came they're getting away from the church of england they're kind of an offshoot of the church of england which is an offshoot of catholicism and they are starting this village but the people in salem town are more connected to england the people in salem village aren't but remember that the united kingdoms is still in charge of who's the magistrate who's uh-huh. the governor who's this who's that so they're still being overarchingly controlled but also in a local context salem village and salem town are always fighting with each other over property rights over grazing rights for animals over huh. church privileges and specifically salem village had these like two factions that were fighting over whether they would spend money to have a church built and have their own reverend or they would all just get up on Sundays and go to Salem Town and use their reverend. Okay. So it was very contentious, and they end up with Reverend Parish in Salem Village after years of disagreement over this. It kind of reminds me of, like, when, um, like, if you take, like, the Mormon church, like, Church of Latter-day Saints, mm-hmm. and then you have all these offshoots. Right. You know, it kind of reminds me of that, how it's like, yeah, we believe in the same thing, but, like, we're doing it different. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when you get into, like, further and further out of the main group, it's like things can get super wacky. And it's, especially in, like, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, it's cold mm-hmm. all winter long. It's a small village. It's the 1600s. You are No secluded. one's having a good time. Yeah, no <laughs> one's having a good time. You are secluded from literally everyone. You are 
not only having fights with your other colonizers, but you're having fights with the French. You're having fights with Native American people mm-hmm. who want their land back. Yeah. Right? Like, so there's so much happening yeah. in the, the colonies at this time. It's absurd. So... There are so many women and girls and men involved in this situation. Like I said earlier, I'm going to focus on Abigail, but I'm going to, during break this time, instead of playing an ad, I'm going to read the names of the people who died just so that I don't want it to think that like I'm focusing on Abigail because she's the most interesting because there are people who lost their lives. Yeah. So Abigail Williams was the first afflicted girl in the Salem witch trials. And despite the fact that little is known about Abigail before or after the trial ended, everybody's fascinated with her. In fact, most of the things we know about her are from Arthur Miller's famous play, The Crucible, which was an allegory to the McCarthy communist witch hunt when he was writing it. Interesting. Abigail was born July 12th, 1680, At the time of the Salem witch trials, she was living with her uncle, Samuel Parrish, who's the reverend. Oh, okay. Who, like, was the contentious reverend that people were fighting over. Mm -hmm. And she was also living with her cousin, Betty Parrish, who is a fellow accuser. We do know that at some point before this, she was employed in the home of the Proctors, John and Elizabeth. Okay, so that's like another family, the Proctor family? Yes, the Proctor family. Um, but that employment was terminated. How we, old was she? She, I mean, she's like 11. She was probably nine or so when she was working with oh them, my God. which means like she was, she was an orphan. Yeah. And when you're orphaned, you kind of go into a person's household in like a servant role, like yeah. a servant daughter. So that's what she had been doing. We don't actually know what happened to Abigail's parents, but it's assumed that they died because of disease. Okay. In the play, Arthur Miller created, like, this backstory where she saw her parents be murdered by Native Americans. And, like, that's kind of why she's a little wacky. But we have zero evidence that that's the case. We also know that while Abigail was living at the parish's household, that there are two slaves living there. Tatuba, who will become more involved in this story later. She's from the West Indies. And another man that we only know as John Indian. And I hate that name. Hmm. Um, but that's what they called this man. Okay. Uh, Williams, Abigail Williams's troubles began in the winter of 1691 or 1692. And she's about 11 years old. And Betty is nine. Some of the girls were reportedly experimenting with future telling, which would have been strictly forbidden in a Puritan household. Specifically, they were using this technique called Venus glass, during which the girls would drop egg whites into a glass of water and interpret whatever shapes or symbols appeared to learn more about their future husbands. That sounds fun. Such a cute, <laughs> such a cute little kid thing to do, right? Uh, and if you wanted, you could just replace that water with like vodka or gin, and um, then shake, shake it, it up. Make a cocktail, shake honey. Vigorously. Dry shake. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I think that's such like a little kid thing to do. Like when you do the Coke can and you do the tab back and forth, A B C D. Oh, that's the initial of my husband. I never did that. <gasps> 
you would break off the fun. tab back and forth. <gasps> and when it broke off, that was the first letter of your husband's name. Oh my gosh. Did it work for you? Did you ever get to J? I don't think I ever made it that far. <laughs> <laughs> I was too muscly with my hands. <laughs> no one ever married someone with the first letter A. <laughs> <laughs> Never ever. Hey. <laughs> my husband's Aaron. Um, that's so, two A's. <laughs> a- A-Ron. <laughs> no, you can get to Z and then back around. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's happening. But according to this book that was written by a local minister later, which you can believe what you want out of that, there's this guy, John Hale. He wrote a modest inquiry into the nature of witchcraft. And the titles of these books are going to get crazier and crazier. (laughs) He said that on one occasion, the girls became terrified because what they saw in the glass was in the shape of a coffin. Also remember that Tatuba is living with them and telling them folk stories from where she grew up. Oh. Not in a malicious way. No, absolutely not. But she's just with the kids all day. Yeah. So, like, of course she's going to tell them stories. That's what you do as a grown-ass woman when you're right. entertaining children. Well, and also, like, that's probably what, like, her family did to her before she was stolen, you right. know? Like, I'm exactly. sure it was like, oh, no, these are the same stories my family told me. So I'm sure she has no concept that, like, why wouldn't I tell you Why this? wouldn't I tell you this? Exactly. Yeah. So shortly after the coffin incident, (laughs) Betty and Abigail begin behaving really strangely and having these fits. They start screaming out in pain and complaining that uh, invisible spirits are pinching them and poking them. And then other girls start to follow suit. Ann Putnam Jr. and Elizabeth Hubbard are two of them. And then 12 other total afflicted girls in the village start having these screaming, pinching fits. That was January. At the end of February, Reverend Samuel Parrish calls a doctor. He's like, come see my daughter. Come see my niece. We believe this is Dr. William Griggs. We don't know. He could not find anything wrong with the girls and determined them to be bewitched. This is very (laughs) bad for a minister's household. To have two bewitched children living with you. Oh, my gosh. Hate to tell you. Uh, they got a bad case of the bewitching. <laughs> that is so upsetting. It's really also upsetting. what a crazy medical diagnosis. <laughs> exactly, that's like my next comment. And his diagnosis, if you could call it that, <laughs> needed to be kept a secret because he's a reverend. Yeah. You can't have the devil living in your house. <laughs> bad press, especially when you're like a contentious reverend. Yeah, he, he was making sixty six dollars a year. That was his salary. And they paid him one third in money and two thirds in housing and provisions. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what $66 would get you back then. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I I have, it's bad. Okay. (laughs) Good. good. Reverends were not paid a lot. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I couldn't tell you were like, and he made $66 a year. I said, that's like a big amount. (laughs) Not a big amount. Okay, cool. So then they're trying to keep this a secret, but apparently it leaks. And this woman at the church, Mary, goes to John Indian, the other slave, and is like, let me tell you what to do if you want to find out who's bewitching these girls. What you have to do is bake a cake out of rye, get the children's urine. Oh, God, no. Bake it in ashes and feed it to a dog. (laughs) And then that dog will lead you to the witch what (laughs) katie 
I have never heard anything. <laughs> That's insane. Is that not insane? Ew. Also, how are you getting all these pee? All this pee? <laughs> I mean, they didn't have indoor. Oh, plumbing. that's true. I guess, so I guess you're not really flushing it away. People were peeing in pots exclusively. Exclusively. Uh, exclusively. <laughs> exclusively, preferably in pots. pots. A few days after this cake incident, Abigail and Betty name three women that they believe were bewitching them. And I want to be very clear. My opinion. And we'll talk about the possibilities later, but my opinion is they were scared to get beaten for doing this witchcraft thing. So they made up a story and it went too far. That's my personal opinion. But there are a lot of theories out there Uh of what happened. Yeah. That's just like as a little girl who was scared of getting in trouble before in my life, Mm -hmm. I can imagine that happening in a community as drastic as this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So... They named three women that they believe to be witches. One is Tatuba, uh, the enslaved woman living in their house. One is Sarah Good, who is a pregnant mother of a young daughter living in town. And one is Sarah Osborne, who had long been absent from the church and was suing one of the accused families. So these three innocent women are arrested and examined on March 1st, 1692. This is two months after this these fits started happening. Well, what can this arrest do to you? You can lose your reputation, Mm -hmm. your property in an agrarian society. You lose any little bit of power that you may have had. You can lose your husband. You can lose your children. And um, whether you plead innocent or guilty, pleading innocent will get you hung. Pleading guilty will have you lose everything in your life. Oh my God. So there's a double standard. Tatuba goes on trial first. Uh, and not first out of all the witches, just first out of these three. Okay. During Tatuba's examination, she decided to take the plea deal. Wow. She worked herself out, which there isn't really a plea deal. That's just what I call it. She confessed to witchcraft and named others in the town, knowing that doing so would save her life. Well, I was going to say she's a slave anyway. What's she so it's lose? like she doesn't have anything to lose. Exactly. Both of the Sarahs pleaded innocent. Um, because they wanted to fight their case. So Tatuba kind of seemed with it. She was like, if I say, no, I'm not a witch, they're just going to say, you are a witch, you are a witch, and torture me until I say I'm yeah. a witch. If I say, sure, I'm a witch, and then say, sorry, they might let me go. Right. So she did what she could. But her quote was, yes, I'm a witch, and like there are others, which ignited a firestorm because of her testimony um also at this point there's no such thing as a defense attorney in english law so these women are defending themselves um it is believed that some confessors some people who confessed were like oh if i confess i'll lose everything but i'll live but it's it's thought that some people who confessed actually believed that their body had been taken by the devil they're like i'm so sorry like i didn't mean to so they were actually confessing to something they didn't do Mm. sarah osborne died in prison and sarah good's husband turned against her saying that she was a witch and her four-year-old daughter was in prison with her and also testified against her and then she gave birth in prison and the baby died and then she was hung oh my god God. So let's also talk about the fact that they are in prison 
in Massachusetts in the winter. There's not heat. No. It's terrible. There's not a lot of food. And then when it moves to summertime, it's smoldering. There's flies. There's lice and maggots. And it's just... (sighs) And, and you know Terrible. that they don't give a shit about prisoners, so they're not like, oh, no. well, we'll start a fire so to keep you guys a little bit warm. Like, there's none of that. No. Mm-mm. Like, they are not trying to give them any sort of humanity whatsoever. No, not at all. There's no no prisoners' rights at this point. So after this news starts to spread through the Massachusetts Bay Colony, a former Salem minister is like, I'm going to come back and help murder people. He witnessed and published firsthand a book about Abigail's fits called A Brief and True Narrative of Some Remarkable Passages Relating to Sundry Persons Afflicted by Witchcraft at Salem Village. (laughs) That's the title of his book. I feel like titles used to be like thesis statements, you know, (laughs) of like, (laughs) yeah, that's a terrible title. He describes the fits as young girls yelling and waving their hands around as if they could fly um, and that they would start pointing out invisible things in the room and say, there's the devil. He wants me to sign his book. I won't take it. I won't take it. And these little girls are yelling this. And it's very scary to see little children like convulsing on the floor and yelling yeah. things. Abigail on March 20th started to disrupt a church service that was going hours long. Cause who would not, mm, if yeah. you're in church for 17 hours, Mm-mm. freak out as an 11 year old girl. And she started doing this several times. And at that moment, she had this convulsion and accused Martha Corey of being a witch. Abigail did? Uh-huh. While she's in church. And oh, Martha's no. in church with her. <gasps> like, okay, well, this is not good. Um, and she said that Martha Corey had made this yellow bird attack her during the church service and that the yellow bird was pecking at her and like sitting on her head what and she kept screaming about a yellow bird okay but can anyone else see this fucking bird no just abigail and then the other girls okay (laughs) (laughs) i'm telling you katie this is upsetting this is what this was the testimony that they were killing people over ah okay 11-year-old girls (laughs) screaming about yellow birds. 11 days later, on March 31st, the Salem Village held a fast to rid themselves of witches. Abigail, at this point, claimed to see witches having the sacrament of communion, uh, drinking blood, and eating flesh. (laughs) I can't. Like, she's saying she's seeing this, but nobody else can see this. And it's the people that or in the town. Okay. Yeah. So then it's April. This is when Elizabeth Proctor and Sarah Cloyce are being examined. Now, Elizabeth Proctor is going to be really important because she's important in the Arthur Miller play. Um, But Abigail at this time says that during this communion, those two were like the leaders of the deacons of the witches. She doesn't even say coven just the lead, yeah. the deacons they're the deacons of the witches and there's 40 witches in this <gasps> town and this is also when she turns on john proctor who's another very important character in the crucible and accuses him of witchcraft as well 
reminder <laughs> that witchcraft is like not having defense attorneys. I know I said that, but these people yeah. have nothing. Yeah. They g- cannot defend themselves. If they say they're innocent, there's no way to prove that they're innocent. Yeah, it just kind of feels like this horrible thing of like a sure way to fuck up someone's life. Yeah. And for a lot of the people who are accusers, they it, they don't really face any consequences. It's like, great, I get rid of this person who irritates me. And like the world goes on. Right. That's fucked. It is. So it's not known exactly why the girls accused John Proctor, but it's suspected that it's because he was an outspoken critic of the girls. Oh. He had even written a letter to the minister in Boston asking him to intervene. So we know that in the crucible, this story is very different. Winona Ryder, Abigail, who's much older and more beautiful, has an affair with John. Okay. And then accuses Elizabeth of witchcraft so that she will die so that she can marry John. Oh. But the age gap doesn't really make sense in real life. Yeah. He was 60 and she was 11. It's not the very like 30 to 17 age gap you see in the movie. Yeah. Not that that's appropriate, but... Um, Arthur Miller is sure this happened. He wrote to the New Yorker in 1996 and he's like, Abigail worked for the Proctors. She got fired. I think there was a relationship, which to me would mean she got raped. Right. right? Uh, If anything. Yeah. This sounds to me like he was sexually abusing her. Yeah. And maybe that's why she accused him. Right. Like that would make more sense to me. Not that there was an affair, like a a sexual relationship between an 11 year old. I don't know. It just seemed like an 11 year old, like Puritan Mm-hmm. society so all we know from the trial transcripts is that when elizabeth proctor was being examined abigail kind of like walks up to her and goes to like hit her but instead doesn't and like just puts her hand gently on elizabeth and then starts screaming like she's being burned in pain very dramatic <laughs> okay <laughs> very very dramatic The Proctors were obviously not the only people Abigail accused of witchcraft. There were hundreds of accusations, but according to records, Abigail accused 57 of those people. (gasps) 57 people? 57. However, she accused a lot of people early in this, March, April, May, and only testified against eight of them, two being the Proctors. She gave her last testimony on June 3rd, and then disappears from the trial records abigail disappears after that date we're not really sure it's possible that her uncle the reverend sent her away like he also sent his daughter betty away to get them away from this but we don't have records of that Mm -hmm. of the people that she accused uh 15 were executed (gasps) one was tortured to death one died in jail two were pardoned at the end of the trials um Many were found not guilty. A couple escaped from prison and a couple like ran from the cops until it was over. Oh my God. So, I mean, there were about 20 people that were murdered and 15 of them were her accusations, which means she is very convincing. Okay. So I also misunderstood from the beginning, like when you said she was a part of the Salem witch trust, I thought you were going to say she was accused, but she Mm -hmm. was an accuser. Mm -hmm. I... That's insane. She is like a murderer. She's like a serial killer. Yeah. She yeah. caused the death of so many people. Yeah. So oh many. Oh, my God. 
Yeah. Oh, that's really upsetting. It is. Okay, so at this point, hundreds of people have been put in prison. 19 are executed. Dogs and cats are killed as specters. Um, People are dying in prison even if they aren't hung. This is a huge fervor. It's starting to spread throughout Massachusetts, not just Salem. People are accusing people from other towns. Like, things are getting wild. And then the governor of Massachusetts's wife gets accused. (gasps) And he goes... Stop this shit and calls a stop to it <laughs> overnight. Wow. So he could have stopped it from the beginning. Could have stopped it from the beginning. Wow. He says stop. Sentences are amended. Prisoners are released. Arrests are stopped. And this entire thing took place in a little over a year. No. A little over. It's like 300 and some odd days. What? After the trials ended, several members of Parrish's congregation fought to have him removed They're like, we don't want this man to be our minister. Right. And they wrote like a list of reasons and Abigail's like all of them. All of them. Yeah. (laughs) They're like, we really, really don't want you to be our minister. Yeah. He wrote a response to this saying that God was trying to teach him a lesson and that that lesson is obvious because the witches and the witch hunt started in his family. He also excuses Betty and Abigail's behavior um, as that too was a trial from God. He then actually stated that he thought that people were unlawfully used to Satan's great advantage. So he did believe Satan was afflicting everybody, but just to make him look bad, (laughs) I guess. So self-involved. Jesus Christ. Honestly. (laughs) He killed those 57 people, whatever it was, just to get back at me. Okay? (laughs) Okay. Like, what? Yeah, God cares that much about About me. About you. Um, In 1967, the people of the church did win their fight, and he was removed from the pulpit. He was dismissed from his job, left Salem Village, and we assume took Betty and Abigail with him. Neither Abigail or Betty ever apologized for their role in the Salem witch trials. However, one of the other very famous accusers, Ann Putnam Jr., was the only afflicted girl who did submit a written apology to the church in 1706, 15 years after it happened. Wow. So that's a really brave thing to do. It is. To be like, I was falsely accusing people and I'm a murderer. Betty Parrish did later marry and raise a family in Sudbury, Massachusetts. There's no records of Abigail Williams after the trial ended. As we know, Arthur Miller strongly suggests that she stole her uncle's money and became a sex worker. But... He didn't have any money. And yeah. And just have <laughs> they no, have no She stole his entire salary of $66. Yeah. We don't even, like, we don't even know where she was buried. We have yeah. no idea what happened to her after this. Um, I would hide my face too, though, girl. Mm-hmm. In a book, The Salem Witch Trials, colon, a day-by-day chronicle of a community under siege, states that Abigail died in 1697 when she was 17 years old, which is the age that she was depicted in the play. Okay. So, again, there's no proof of this, but there are vague references to an afflicted girl dying around this time. Mm -hmm. So it could have been her. Location of her grave, totally unknown. The site in Massachusetts where she lived was recently excavated in 1970 and is open to visitors. It's also important to say that Salem did not handle this incident well. Mm. After it, 
they effed everything up. They took down the gallows and hid where they were. <gasps> we don't know where they were. Oh, shit. They burned all the records. They, they knew that they murdered these people, and they covered it up. This oh is like God. Watergate super early. They, people in the town were forbidden to speak about it, forbidden to write about it in letters. Um, they destroyed any of us getting good details on what actually happened because they knew they were negligent in yeah. these murders. And not only negligent, they didn't just ignore it. They created it. Yeah. Yeah. We made these murders happen. So, like I said, we don't even know where the bodies are buried, and that's why they created this new memorial with the benches, so that we can talk about those people. Mm-hmm. So here's the theories. That there's some vengeance from the girls and or vengeance from the girls on behalf of their parents. And when mm. I read the names of the people who died, that'll make a little more sense. Because yeah. it's mostly people who were struggling financially or mm-hmm. widows or, like, people they didn't like. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly that their parents didn't like. And kids listen to you talk at dinner. Like, yeah. they know what you're mad at. Yeah. So my personal opinion is that they were lying to save themselves. There's another really popular theory that there was this fungus growing on the food, which was growing in that area. And that fungus is a component to LSD. Mm. And people are like, why were they saying yellow bird? Why were they making all these really wild accusations? And that may have explained Abigail and Betty because they lived in the same house and would be eating the same food. Mm-hmm. but that wouldn't explain all the girls freaking out at exactly the same time. Right. So it may have started with hallucinations and then moved on to something else. Um, and then obviously it could have been entertainment. Whatever actually happened, these girls had no power. They couldn't yeah. speak. They couldn't talk. Abigail was a servant girl. She had no dowry for a good marriage or good property. Mm-hmm. And they could have started it as something fun. And then it turned into something terrible. You know, I kept thinking uh, the entire time you're telling me this story about that book, what Mr. Matero did Mm. and just how like out of hand things can get when you have, cause like, you know, it's a book about these three girls who falsely accuse a teacher of sexually harassing them. Right. And like, it destroys his whole life. And like, then it's like, you find out at like the end of the book, spoiler alert, that like, you know, like the main girl, like the ringleader who kind of sounds like Abigail, you know, she has like a shitty home life. And she just is needing someone to pay attention to her Mm -hmm. and then like drags all these people into it. So I kind of wonder if that's like the same group think of like maybe Abigail was assaulted by John Proctor and it's like, no one, I'm like, my parents are dead. No one is fucking listening to me. So you know what? Like, kind of like you're saying, like they don't have any power. Right. So it's like, we have power as a group of girls. So, like, let's fuck shit up. This is the one thing we can do. Yeah. It's the only thing people will listen to. And, like, I do think 11 and 12-year-old girls are that smart. Yes. I do think yes. they are smart enough to be that vicious. Absolutely. But I also think they're that misguided enough to not realize how far adults will take it. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, think about <laughs> your own personal mindset in middle school. Mm-hmm. These are middle school girls. And if there is a worse time in anyone's life, it is middle school. Yeah. It is the absolute of everyone's existence right so i know but like i just imagine like i could totally see the girls in my middle school like getting together and like doing something like this you know in any middle school like i don't know it's just i don't know how much (laughs) 
11 and 12 year old girls have changed over time. No, they, I don't but, think they have. And it's just such a like it's such a hard story because the adults were so ready to push their own agenda mm-hmm. that they were willing to take their testimony as fact. Yeah. Well, it's confirmation bias. It's like, you know what? Yeah, I do fucking hate John Proctor. So I will absolutely accuse him and his family of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And it's like using these girls and their, you know, testimony, however Mm -hmm. crazy it is, as, yeah, as a way to execute your own personal vendettas, Mm -hmm. which, yeah, I think that's exactly what's happening here. Yeah. Agreed. Because people are petty. (laughs) In middle school and adulthood, people are (laughs) fucking petty. All the time. Okay, so during the break, I'm going to read the names of the accused and why they were accused. Obviously, you can skip ahead like normal, Mm -hmm. but uh, it's just we're going to do that instead of our ad today because I thought those people were all important. Yeah. Bridget Bishop, age 50, widow in Salem Town, had been accused of witchcraft before. Therefore, she was used as an easy first win for the courts, murdered by hanging on June 10th, 1692. Sarah Good, age 39, poor and pregnant, and would often go door to door begging much to the displeasure of all the neighbors, murdered by hanging July 19th, 1692. Elizabeth Howe, age 57, refused to attend church after her first accusation of witchcraft, and therefore they went after her again, branded a witch, murdered by hanging, July 19th, 1692. Susanna Martin, age 71, poor widow, accused of infanticide, murdered by hanging, July 19th, 1692. Rebecca Nurse, age 71, was an elderly grandmother who had a long-standing feud with the Putnam family over boundaries between land, murdered by hanging July 19th, 1692. Sarah Wilds, age 65, she had a bad reputation for fornicating out of wedlock and wearing a silk scarf, murdered by hanging July 19th, 1692. Reverend George Burroughs, age 40, Borrowed money from the Putnam family to keep him afloat. Did not repay his debts. Murdered by hanging August 19th, 1692. Maria Carrier, age 33, niece of an outspoken opponent of the witch trials and sister to another accused witch. Murdered by hanging August 19th, 1692. John Willard, age 30, was a deputy who helped arrest and try witches but started to have doubts. Murdered by hanging, August 19th, 1692. George Jacobs, age 72, was a reluctant churchgoer and outspoken critic of the trials. Murdered by hanging, August 19th, 1692. John Proctor, age 61, outspoken critic of the trials. Murdered by hanging, August 19th, 1692. Alice Parker, age unknown, got a bad reputation for clairvoyance when she correctly predicted her friend's husband's ship sinking murdered by hanging september 22nd 1692 mary parker age 40 a widow many think this witchcraft claim was a mistaken identity she says she is not that person murdered by hanging september 22nd 1692 ann purder 70s a widow with a sharp tongue who accused the accusers of lying murdered by hanging september 22nd 1692 
Wilmont Reed, age unknown, had never even met the girls before and was believed to be accused based on a sad coincidence. Murdered by hanging September 22nd, 1692. Margaret Scott, age 77, a widow accused by two prominent families in Salem, one of which sat on the jury for her trial. Murdered by hanging September 22nd, 1692. Samuel Wardwell, age 49, carpenter, known as a fortune teller and practitioner of English folklore, murdered by hanging September 22nd, 1692. Martha Corey, age 72, reputation for being pious, but it was a known fact that she had a child out of wedlock, murdered by hanging September 22nd, 1692. Mary Eastie, age 58, was known to be pious, but was a sister of an accused witch, murdered by hanging September 22nd, 1692. Giles Corey, age 71, reputation for being angry and violent, refused to enter a plea to prevent his case from going to trial, was tortured for three days in an attempt to force a plea, died as a result, being pressed to death, September 19th, 1692. And those are the people. Mm. Hey. Ah! It can't be sobbing or bawling. No. It has to be weeping. It has to be weeping. <laughs> at certain occasions yeah. <laughs> um you'll never know what that was about nope okay this so. drink is so fun <laughs> also fun fact this glass was what they used to toast at my grandparents wedding <gasps> really yeah. oh my gosh was i not supposed no, to no, use no. it my mom okay. gave it to me my mom gave it to me she was like oh my god we use we only use glasses here i told her it's gonna get okay. broken cool yeah um it was just so pretty and it like it i is. love that shape because it's similar to this one and uh-huh. then i was i was actually like torn yeah i, I still really have like to show one. you all the glasses i got from her house <sighs> i have to show you perfect the ones from my cocktail were that too we need to liven up our we do yeah. the pictures um okay so this is called death scenes become her <laughs> <laughs> and it's based off of a cocktail called Death in the Afternoon. It was like a 1920s kind of mm-hmm. cocktail. Like Afternoon Delight, but mm-hmm. death. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it is vanilla vodka, <sighs> simple syrup, absinthe, rum chata, <laughs> all shaken together. And you top it with champagne. I'm going to say, I was so... watching you make this and I was like, what is happening? Yes. Cheers. Oh, gosh. I, I think it, it curled a little bit. No, mine didn't. Whoops. <laughs> mine didn't. Uh, so make sure you drink it immediately. I think it um, looks great. I mean, just the top. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> kind of wonder if the champagne was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, do, we'll go like this. Ah, real quick. Oh, gosh. Look, yeah, just, just like, stir it with your pencil. Just stir it. Stir it. Stir it. Oh, gosh. Um, so do you know anything about Sarah Bernhardt? <laughs> I know she was an actress, and she was a contemporary of that other woman, Charlotte, mm-hmm. um, which I read a book about. Yeah, the book so was great. The book was Lady really Romeo. Great. I, have, I have two of them on my bookshelf. Anybody want a copy? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. If you want a copy, message me, and I'll send Ooh, you one. Perfect. First person to message me, first dibs. New Year's um, giveaway. I love uh, a green cocktail because mm-hmm. they're rare, yes. and I love the um like rum chata and absinthe i think play off of each other really really well yeah. because of the two like similar yet different tastes mm-hmm. 
it's definitely interesting. And I actually, because I wanted it to be kind of like a milky green, and it's absolutely that. Oh, it's a um, beautiful color. Yeah, it's a really nice color. So, I are you ready to learn about Sarah Bernhardt? I really do <laughs> want to learn about Sarah Bernhardt. She seems crazy. I mean, I'm guessing based on the name of the cocktail and based on the plays you said earlier that she dies on stage a lot or mm-hmm. like kills people on stage a lot, which is nice. Yeah, because she just I, like loves a death scene. I mean... Like that one guy, Sean Beam and her. Yeah, they love dying on screen. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Love death. Um, so I got the, a lot of this information. Honestly, all of this information from the History Chicks. They did a great, like, two-hour episode on her. Um, wow. And then the other parts from, like, Wikipedia, honestly, because they had a few more details I thought were really interesting. Um, so, yeah, so those are my two sources. And let's get into it. Do you think we'll ever be like the History Chicks? No. <laughs> Me neither. Not in not in amount of detail, but in longevity. <laughs> I hope so. We're getting there. We are really just keeping going. <laughs> um, okay. So, Henriette Rosine Bernard was born in France on possibly October 23rd, my birthday, sometime between 1841 and 1847. <laughs> okay. So, this is like... 200 years after my story. 200 mm-hmm. years after Abigail was born. Yes. Um, so her official birth record was lost in a fire. Um, and of course, being a darling of the stage, sometimes it was useful to lie about her age every once in a while. <laughs> so we have no idea when exactly she was born. Um, but I think the most commonly accepted year is 1844. Such is the life of Sarah Bernhardt, who was born into such unique circumstances that I think sometimes fibbing about her life was the only way she could survive. So how Madame Tuzana. <laughs> I know. So Sarah was the eldest of five children born to Judith Bernard, who was professionally known as Julie or Yule. And as far as Sarah's father goes, we really have no idea because her mother, Judith, was a high-end courtesan with many wealthy suitors. My dream job, honestly. <laughs> Seriously. So Judith, in her own right, is a very interesting character, so we're going to get into her for a second. She was a Dutch-Jewish girl living in the Netherlands with her seven siblings. When she was 14, her mother died, and... Uh, she and her sister decide that they are going to seek upward mobility on their own by making a splash on the social scene, which meant being courtesans. They're like, we will literally work our way up through wealthy men, like clawing their way to the top. (laughs) So they become courtesans, but within a year, Judith, when she's 15, gives birth to twins who die shortly after birth. no. I know. So she has these twins. They die. And she's like, okay, I'm not getting anywhere in the Netherlands. So she moves to Paris and she works as a seamstress by day and a courtesan by night. (laughs) Um, But again, only to wealthy, well-to-do men. So she is dating politicians, you know, like people who work in finance, you know, bankers, lawyers, things like that. Um, And one of these men was the Duke de Mornay, who was one of the most powerful men in France at the time. He was like the half brother or something or half cousin. I don't know. It was a weird relation to Napoleon the third, who was the emperor of 
the France? <laughs> so not the Napoleon that we know, but like his great grandson or something like that. Yeah. So he'll come back to the story for a little, a little bit. So I Napoleon wanted to mention him. Napoleon actually, yes. And Duke de Mornay. Okay, great. So Judith and her sister are taking the Paris nightlife by storm. Uh, they even end up operating their own salon where they host parties to find and meet these interesting men. Mm. And things are really starting to look up when Judith gets pregnant again when she's 16. This is, of course, with Sarah. And Sarah couldn't have come at a worse time for Judith, who saw this baby as really inconvenient for her career plan. <laughs> But Am I right? <laughs> either way, she comes, and we indeed have a baby girl in our midst. Listen, Wonder Woman did it. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so she's born, and on her baptism certificate, a man named Ed- Edward Bernard, or Barnard was listed, who historians believe to be Judith's brother, so Sarah's uncle. Not in a weird way, but I think it was just like, oh my God, we're at the church, the baby's being baptized, and I need a, a man to be on the certificate. Did somebody signed this paperwork. Exactly. I so no I think power. he just signed it. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, but as we said earlier, a kid is not really vibing with Judith's lifestyle. So very early on, Sarah is sent off to live with a family in the town of Brittany, which is 300 miles away from Paris in Western France. Needless to say, Judith didn't come to visit super often because it was so far away. Leaving Sarah to pine for her mother and make up stories about why her mother hasn't come to rescue her yet. But really, like, she was just kind of vamping because she was, like, really sad because she missed her mom and she didn't really want to be there. Oh, how any of her. I know. So after a few years, she finally did actually come back for her daughter, possibly because Mystery Daddy came through with some money to send her to Madame Frizard's boarding school. <gasps> so she gets picked up but then dropped off somewhere else. So she still has never, like, lived with her mom. <laughs> So she's dropped up at boarding school and she's kind of excited to go to school. But the problem is like she gets there and she is not the most emotionally stable kid. Well, and everybody else knows how to read. Exactly. (laughs) And she has a ton of energy. She's got a lot of emotions going on. So she would often explode in anger and frustration. She would bite other girls and hit them and get into fights it meant she was sent to solitary confinement frequently, which book, I don't know what kind of boarding school this is, but <laughs> there was uh, one little ray of light during this time, though. Um, they would get visits from the women of La Comédie Française, which was like one of the state's premier theaters. It was very, um, it was like one of the biggest things. Like it would be like, a, like Broadway actresses coming to your school and they would do theater workshops for the girls at this school. And Sarah loved it. Get in your service hours. Yeah. And she finally felt like she had a place to express like all of these feelings and this energy. And soon she was cast in her first theatrical performance in the play Clotilde, where she held the role of the queen of the fairies and performed her first of many dramatic death scenes apparently she was great in the play but of course on the night that her mother came with the duke de mornay to see the play sarah saw them and completely froze 
And she got stage fright for the first time. And she just ran off stage. Because, like, her mother was this very emotional figure in her life. And just the sight of her made her flip out. And she actually, like, that was the beginning of her stage fright. And she really never got over it. Um, it's like Lauren Hill and Sistrock, too. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. So everybody vibe with me if you understand. <laughs> um. So she runs off stage. Her mother runs after her, finds her. And instead of comforting her, she yells at her and tells her that she's really disappointed in her and that she what she did was extremely embarrassing. A reprimand is never the answer. Never. It also didn't help things that Judith had another baby during this time. Oh, another little girl named Jean, who apparently Judith didn't want to ditch with a random family. She actually kind of liked this baby, which she made very clear to Sarah. Then Sarah's life turned upside down again when they decided to bring her out of boarding school and send her to a convent. Don't know why, but now she's at Grand Champ, an exclusive Augustine convent school near Versailles. The building was very intimidating, but the mother superior of the school was not. And she actually, Sarah really loved being here. She found a lot of comfort with the nuns. She really felt attached to them. She got really into Catholicism. She just kind of felt like, okay, this makes sense. Well, I because if like you're this. around the religious people who are doing it right, it's comforting. Yeah. yeah, it is. So because of this close relationship she developed, she declared that she would become a nun even though she did get into a lot of trouble at school for doing some big no-nos of the Catholic Church. Like, apparently she performed a very elaborate Christian burial for her pet lizard. She loved animals. <laughs> um, but she would keep this Catholic faith for the rest of her life. But she was ancestrally Jewish. So she always said she was a devout Roman Catholic who was also very proud of her Jewish ancestry. <laughs> She's got a lot of stuff going on here. Okay. <laughs> ethnicity and religion it mm -hmm. can be separate mm -hmm. uh, but she learned a lot from the school especially how to behave and speak like a classy parisian woman um and she's like okay great i just like know what my life is going to be i'm going to be at the school i'm going to be a nun i'm going to be a teacher like this is great and then when she's 14 she's taken out of the convent school we don't know why but it might be because her mother didn't want her becoming a nun she was like nope you're getting married that's just what we do. But this proved difficult because when she brought her out and was like, let's get you on the marriage market, all the notable men in Paris were like, she's the daughter of a courtesan. We can't marry her. Like, we know exactly what you and your family do. Like, you're not the marrying type. So while her future is kind of in flux, um, she's back at home not even back she's at home with her mother for the first time you know and she had just gotten comfortable at a new school so she's in this small parisian apartment with her mother and her mother's been having kids this whole time so there were like a bunch of like babies and toddlers running around yo consistency this is the number one thing for yeah. a child consistency this apartment is hectic and wild and so Sarah finds herself like after so long of longing to be with her mother escaping. So she finds comfort 
in The Upstairs Neighbor. It's a woman named Madame Girard. Madame Girard soon becomes Sarah's best friend and confidant and mother figure and everything under the sun for the next 40 years. I have no idea how old this woman was, but I kind of imagine her to be like if Sarah's 14, I would love it if this woman was like a 25 year old, like widow for some reason Mm -hmm. who just like is filthy rich. Like I would love that for her, like for her to just be like a kind of young woman because they're friends for 40 years. I mean, she must, she couldn't have been like 60. No, you know, Especially not in the 1800s. Absolutely not. You're not living that long. Not with the kidneys. Definitely not. So here is finally a person in Sarah's life who thought that she was smart and funny and interesting and and talented. A person who believed in her. Sarah would go on to say that Madame Girard mattered more to her than anyone else. Because Madame Girard was the family that she chose. And she has this very emotional quote about, like, choosing your own family. Very sex in the city. That's very early. Chosen family? Yeah. To say that in the 1800s? I know. Chosen family is, like, such a powerful thing now, especially for the LGBTQ community. Absolutely. Like, her quote just, like, reminded me of, like, that scene in Sex and the City when, like, Charlotte's like, maybe we can be each other's soulmates. You know, like, choosing the people that, like, you consider the most important in your life. So... She thankfully has Madame Girard to comfort her and to hang out with. Um, But one day, her horrible mother hosts an intervention about what in the world they're going to do with Sarah. She is like, I don't know what to do with this girl. And Sarah's like, just let me become a nun. And her mom's like, no, (laughs) we don't know what to do. So, like, she's kind of meeting with people to, like, see if they can find her, like, any man that will take her. And for some reason, the Duke de Mornay is there. And he's like, oh, my gosh, just make her just have her become an actress. OK, she was in that little play all those years ago. Just have her become an actress. And Sarah's like, "Ah, uh, I got stage fright. I don't think that's for me. I don't know about that. And her mother is like, she's not talented. She can't do it. <gasps> but she is talented. I know. Secret, secret. So the Duke is like, okay, you know what? I have tickets to go to the theater tonight with my friend, Alexander Dumas. So <laughs> the author of The Three Musketeers. <laughs> and the, the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh-huh. Crisco? Chris, Cristo. Cristo. No, I said Crisco. I think last week I said Crisco. <laughs> yep, definitely. Uh, yeah. So they go to the and theater. And then also the Nutcracker. Mm-hmm. So they go to the theater oh. with Alexander Dumas. And <laughs> that's where I've been all these years in the theater with Alexander Dumas. Exactly. Like you do. So they're sitting there in his personal theater box and she is seeing a professional theater production for the first time. And she is blown away. She goes, I didn't know it was this. She's like, I knew I liked doing these little things at school, but this is a whole different level and she's so involved in this story because she's seeing people professionally do it and she starts apparently sobbing through the play because she's so overwhelmed and again her mom is like oh my god stop you are fucking embarrassing me and her mom yells at her for crying is she i mean is she sobbing or is she weeping she's weeping (laughs) 
Weeping is more silent uh, than sobbing, I think. Oh, that's true. Like, yeah, she's definitely sobbing. <laughs> she's being very, she's being very loud. Yeah, but okay. <laughs> Alexander Dumas found her quite endearing. And he said, well, this girl obviously belongs on the stage. And he went on to call her for the rest of his life, my little star, from this moment on. Dumas? Dumas? Yeah. <laughs> Lexi Dumas. Um, so Sarah auditions. I called Xander last yeah. week. <laughs> so Sarah auditions for the Paris Conservatory, another like big state-run theater. And... In addition to being very impressed with her emotional range and her acting skills, they're like, wow, like this girl's pretty talented. So is acting, I know acting at this time is seen kind of like you're a sex worker in some mm-hmm. cases. Is acting a step up from courtesan or a step yes, down? Yes, a step up for sure. Like okay. these people are respected in their time. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's definitely like... A step up from courtesan, Right, but I you think. wouldn't like your like super rich like daughter of a lord wouldn't want to be an actress but like a daughter of a courtesan would like that's what she would yeah like again like blue collar work yeah it's like again a wealthy man wouldn't marry an actress but they appreciate them in this time they're like okay they're pretty good (laughs) thanks for entertaining me on a friday for that that's how i feel about netflix Mm -hmm. I, i wouldn't marry netflix but like it's pretty good i'd go out with it for sure <laughs> I, um, I date you while i was <laughs> looking for my husband so my husband being disney plus <laughs> i don't know if anybody gets to the end on the to- soda can um, <laughs> if you skipped ahead you missed out on a joke okay a joke. <laughs> so she auditions, and they're probably going to admit her anyways, but it also doesn't help that the Duke de Mornay, like, put in a good word for her. And he goes, okay, let her in. And they go, you're the boss. Okay. <laughs> Apparently, he's the boss of everything. Um, so, Duke. Yeah, she's in. And the so she's basically in to, like, Juilliard. Like, a very classical training situation did you staple your story this week i did i bought a stapler last week i know i so was weird. at um i've my, never seen you do this i this is actually really embarrassing i ripped my printer apart with my hands because i was so frustrated with it it was actually like i cut my hand <laughs> i have a big slash on my okay. hand it's okay, like okay. ripped it apart and so i had to go buy a new printer um and i was there and i couldn't find like a decent printer so i had to order one offline whatever but i didn't want to leave empty-handed because i have a weird thing about that in Mm. stores which Mm -hmm. is a problem Mm -hmm. and so i was like fine i'll buy a stapler and i was like this stapler is actually pretty useful this is really interesting so (laughs) i need you to understand something so you know how i'm reading my story i put like a page down yes and my story gets shorter and shorter Mm -hmm. i never know with you when your story is almost over because you put it behind (laughs) you like file behind it's funny because I, when I go first, no, when I go second, whatever. Mm-hmm. No, when I go first, it always bothers me that you do that because I can see your notes because all I see is your back page where you've been taking notes. Yeah. 
And I'm like, but I can see her notes, which is like not a big deal. But I, <laughs> there they are. Start, I'm going to start like tucking. cheating. You want me to chuck, tuck them in? <laughs> please <laughs> tuck it. Just tuck it. Okay. Well, also, please let me know how far your story is. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's why I noticed the stable because I'm like, I know exactly how far she is. Oh, look is. at that. Yeah. I've never known before. That's right, why I noticed. Well, I'll start I've doing it. insecure. <laughs> I'm like, should I tell her to set them down? Or? Oh I love gosh. that we hate each other's methods. That's to so such funny. A, like, we've been doing this. <laughs> like, we've been thinking secretly <laughs> thinking this for years, years. <laughs> and we haven't told each other that's outrageous <laughs> okay uh, so that's what friends are <laughs> okay go ahead jamal <laughs> so glad there are so many notes in many different keys bum, bum, bum. so <laughs> just that one aerial special <laughs> okay so, so she's in to basically juilliard but it's a very classic theater training. But Sarah is not a classic actress. In no. fact, her theater coaches call her turbulent. Trash. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, she would rather do a scene 20 wrong ways before she ever did it the right way. I'm obsessed with her. And this is not exactly an era filled with artistic interpretation. Like, we're talking about, like, right before silent film. So it's like, no, no, no. If you want to emote sadness, you have to make the corners of your mouth go down. And you have to wail, wail, wail. Because the people in the back can't see you and microphones haven't been invented yet. Mm. You know, so it's very, mm. like, this action means this, period. And she goes... Well, actually, I think you could get the same message across if you just like tilted your head or like swung your hips or whatever. Like she's thinking like it doesn't actually have to be this way. I'm going to put my own spin on it. But it meant that she wasn't getting good grades. (laughs) (laughs) And that meant her prospects for future work were looking dim because like you're basically going to school in the theater company that is going to put you in productions. And if you're getting bad notes, they're not going to put you in any fucking productions. (laughs) And it also meant that her mother was like, I knew it. You're a disgrace. Like you're so dumb. You're really bad at acting. (laughs) Her mom is so mean to her. Um, But I will say it kind of reminds me of Lucille Ball, how like Lucille Ball flunked out of theater school because she was too different, too avant-garde. And I think that's the same thing that's happening here. She's not like with the same note as what everybody's playing. No, she's not. Exactly. But the Duke de Mornay comes to her rescue again and he was like, okay, look, I know you don't like her style, but you have to put her in something. So he calls La Comédie Française, which is the big theater program we talked about earlier, the right. big state theater. Right. It's a huge deal. One of the most respected theaters in France. And he's like, you need to hire her. So they do. <laughs> I and love this. is male sponsorship. It really is. Like, I, like, people are like, is he her dad? I don't think he is. I think that he just, like, because it also, like, it was one of her mom's clients. Like, I don't know why he took such an interest in her, but he did. And like, he was also a client of like her aunt, like, because they were sister courtesans. Like he was a client of both of theirs. I mean, he could have been her dad. He could have been her uncle. He could have been, I mean, he could have just been with her mom so long 
that this is her oldest or second oldest child and was just like, I have a relationship with this kid. Yeah. Like I went to her play in middle school. Yeah. Like I know I feel about that. Like with kids, when I go to kids plays, like when yeah. they get older, I'm like, good for you. Yeah. I he, think there's so many options that he could be. Exactly. And you know, I think the history chicks put it perfectly when they're like, he's kind of like her fairy godfather. Like he's just like, I want you to he, be living a better life. He's a don- <laughs> like, he's a donor character. He absolutely donor is. Donor character. Love it. Male so, sponsor uh, slash donor mm-hmm. character. Um, and this is when, when she gets in the La Comédie Française, she officially adopts the stage name of Sarah Bernhardt. Is La Comédie Française like Second City? I would say it's more like Broadway. Oh. Like, yeah. It's, oh, it's, it's fancy. It's, <laughs> that's the thing. It's like La Comédie, but it's not a, com- it doesn't seem to me like it's a comedic thing. Like, it that's what I kept crazy thinking. crazy to go straight to Broadway. Yeah. But that's what a male donor character does <laughs> in a sense. He's like, you're going to go right to the top. Um, so she gets in. She's now Sarah Bernhardt. And in 1862, at the age of 17, we think. Again, we don't know when she was born, but 17. She makes her first professional stage debut. And it is a disaster. Oh, Her stage fright comes back. (gasps) She rushed her lines. She's visibly nervous on stage. She takes off her costume after the first act. And it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. And they're like, honey, we have four more acts to go. This is a five-act play. You need to get dressed again. A five-act play? And she's in every act. What year is this? 1862. Somebody needs to Call somebody. Just arrest Shakespeare. So she's... <laughs> <laughs> Take him. Take him to the courts. She's devastated. And when she gets done, she goes to her acting coach and she goes, I'm so sorry. And he said, look, I can forgive you. You'll eventually forgive yourself. But Racine, in his grave, never will. He was the playwright. <laughs> Listen, that's a, the greatest advice I've ever heard in yeah. my whole life. Yeah. My whole 35 well, like, years. And I kind of like it, too, because he's like, look, that guy will never forgive you, but he's fucking dead. So who cares? Right. People will get over this. Nobody cares. It's not like she's famous yet. No, she's not. She's not. So the reviews come out and they say, well, she's very thin and pretty. Oh. But that's it. Oh. And... When her mother read the reviews, she made sure to tell Sarah how upset she was because now everyone in Paris knew that her daughter was terrible. Have you seen Spanglish? <laughs> this is like the mom in Spanglish. It is. Yes. Yes, it is. It. Mm-hmm. I think about that every day when I'm like helping my daughters get dressed. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't want to say too much. But yeah, I know. It's very <sighs> terrible. It's really upsetting. It's hard to think about. It is. Um, Cause like you want to like be inspiring, but also not critical, but not, yeah. You don't want to be, you want to help, but you don't want to help too much. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to let things go that are like, you're going to get picked on later. My mom hit the perfect stride of just completely ignoring that I was a female. Oh, she just told <laughs> me to do it. <laughs> she goes, what? No, no, you're not a, no, no it's fine. Not, all you and the boys all the same. Can, <laughs> Somebody curl Katie's hair yeah, for eight by, <laughs> by literally not acknowledging womanhood at all. <laughs> she did it perfectly. She did it. Oh, oh, great um, job. <laughs> I mean, here you are. Here I am. 
<laughs> um, Hashtag all moms. <laughs> but in a funny twist, it was not her poor performance which ousted her from La Comédie Française, but it was her temper. One night at a company party, Sarah's little sister, Rogine, was there with her. She felt she was really close with Regine. I don't know why of all the five siblings, she was like really close with her. And they're at this party and Regine accidentally steps on the dress of a famous actress, Madame Natalie. And Madame Natalie turns around and she shoves this little girl into like a pile of like, like a stone, like edge of something. I don't know what it was, but she, gets a gash on her head and she's bleeding profusely like all over the room and sarah walks up to her and she goes you're a bitch and slaps her in the face (laughs) good Uh, this is like the main big wig actress of the time who then of course says well you can keep your job if you apologize to me. No. And she goes, I'm not apologizing to you for fucking anything. Oh, is this the Audrey? Not Audrey. Hepburn. Yes, Catherine Hepburn, Hepburn Lucille, Lucille Ball. Ball situation. I thought this. I was like, <laughs> they are really similar. It's very Curly similar. red hair. Pissed off a high-ranking like, actress. I came in. I pissed you off. You fucking yelled at me. And I'm not taking it. Yeah. And I'm but, still going to be more famous than you, you son exactly. of a bitch. Unlike Lucille Ball, though, she did lose her job. <laughs> but listen, if you want a petty-ass bitch, yeah. you can always find one. Exactly. Find somebody who's more petty than you to fight your fights. Exactly. So she gets fired. That's lame. <laughs> I'm Very really lame. upset about that. I'm sad that she got fired. I'm going to tell you a story later where I just recently had to be a petty-ass bitch for my bestie okay it's gonna be a great story okay it does this have to do with the instagram thing you posted the other day oh yeah which is funny because the way that it looked it looked as if you and claire weren't friends no. anymore <laughs> no okay perfect it's so, so me and claire are so friends i had to fight her battle for her <sighs> excellent. oh excellent. but i did it on my own free will she didn't ask me to excellent so we'll get into that later <laughs> so, obviously obviously Okay, so Sarah's fired, but she gets another job at the theater gymnase, um, smaller theater. She's an understudy, not really getting a whole lot of parts. So she's like, all right, I'm not even working, so I'm going to take a trip to Brussels with Alexander Dumas, my good friend. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe he's part of this story after I just did the background. Ellie, it gets crazier. (laughs) Are they like... Having an affair. Who knows? Probably. Maybe. Probably. Maybe. Likely. Um, actually, no, because she's having an affair with someone else. A Belgian aristocrat. What, you can't sleep with two people at once? No, you can. Especially <laughs> if you're Sarah Bernhardt. Um, so she's having an affair with this Belgian aristocrat named Henri. Guys, just get tested. Okay, who was... Yeah, please do. Um, <laughs> who was the Prince de Ligne. So I, he's not the Prince of Belgium. He is just... <sighs> Like, basically, I think what this means is, like, he's, like, a duke of something. Like, he's from old family money, old family line, very high up, though. Not in a duke of Edinburgh. No, but no, no, like, no. But, like, a duke. Uh-huh. uh-huh I hear you. Uh-huh. I hear you. I hear you. So, they have this affair after meeting at a masked ball. Stop. 
it's like what the hell kind of life is she she's an understudy and she's living the most glamorous life all i want is that but she does get pregnant and she has a son a boy named maurice who is like the light of her life so cute. Who, of course, Maurice, on- <laughs> crazy old Maurice. <laughs> but of course, Henri wanted nothing to do with his baby or her because, like, he's a really high nobility, and like his family. I was, hate like, that. His family was literally like, "We will disinherit you if you even try <gasps> to be a part of this child's oh my life." God, I, I mean, also- we were just talking about this, but it's this happened to her. No, but I mean, also that is a thing where it's like you marry a high nobility nobility woman and then we will pay for your side chick yeah exactly i mean it is terrible because both women are feeling absolutely bad about themselves and like in a super terrible situation but yeah. like ugh! yeah okay go ahead so wants nothing to do with them until years later when sarah got famous he came crawling back to her on was like, knees. hey, it's me, a papa. I'm here to. That's not Brussels accent. I don't know what they sp- they speak French. You became they Italian, speak all the- American Italian. <laughs> so he comes back and he goes, hey, it's me, your dad. And Maurice politely declined. <laughs> Good for him. Explaining that he was entirely satisfied to be the son of Sarah Bernhardt, not the prince Deline. Yeah, fuck you. Go away. <laughs> go, Maurice. Maurice is like a great little character in this. He's I like with. Him. He's just keep in mind all the shit I'm about to tell you. He is there. She doesn't do from what I could understand what her mother did. She doesn't like. She takes him like everywhere, which I also can really appreciate. That's like hard to do, especially in the fucking 1800s. So you mean you mean bringing your child where you go <laughs> and not having people so difficult come to your house. <laughs> so she has a baby she's back in paris Mm. and then she somehow Mm. gets custody of her nine-year-old half-sister regine regine yes the one who was assaulted at this party by Catherine hepburn uh (laughs) okay just kidding not Catherine hepburn madame natalie but (laughs) so now Catherine hepburn three of them people oh my god (laughs) the three of them are living in a small apartment in paris she still has like some small parts, understudy roles, whatever she can get, and, and like various the theaters around Paris. Land. Um, and she starts becoming um a courtesan at night, you know, getting into the family business, entertaining prominent men, um, which she would call which I love this. She called her gentleman callers her menagerie, <gasps> which is funny because she legitimately also has a menagerie of animals later, but that's what she referred to them as, which we'll get into. But um so she's doing this, she's doing everything she can to support these two kids. And then her fairy godfather, Mornay, comes in yet again. I thought it was Dumas. No. Dumas is Alexander Dumas. Oh. That's her just like... The girl godfather. Yes. The, like, the girl she was friends with from the upstairs apartment. No, no, no. That's Madame Gerard. Sorry. Jesus. There are a lot of people here. So the Duke de Mornay. So this is the guy that got her into theater right, school, right, right. got her a originally, job. Originally. I've, she her is, mom sued her. There are so many people who care about her. It's really I know. odd for me. It's really odd for me. But it's beautiful. <laughs> it is nice that everybody's like, I, I'm willing to see your potential, you garbage human. Exactly. Right. So he gets her a regular theater gig at the Odeon Theater. So she gets this 
she gets into this theater and it just seems to be a better fit for her. Mm. And in 1868, she finally has a decent performance. She gets a good review and (gasps) things start to look up. Oh no. Yay. And then she's like doing really well. So she gets cast in other plays and she has a string of hit performances. And she went from a virgin with a broomstick for a body, which was a real review of her when she first started (laughs) to a serious actress who people started to adore. Suddenly, she is getting rave reviews in all the papers. She has a group of super fans that called themselves the Sarah Doters. Is this the first ever fangirl club? It must. I mean, probably not, but like it has to be one of the earliest ones. Are they the Benedict Cumberbitches? Basically. (laughs) I love it. And she especially becomes famous for her incredibly dramatic death scenes because... A lot of people, when they did death scenes, would be like, oh, oh, and like melt down to the floor. Sarah would get rigid and fall straight on her face. (laughs) She didn't give a fuck. She would hurt herself frequently in these death scenes because she wanted them to be dramatic. She wanted them to be different and unique. And they were. And then her performance in a play called Le Passant (gasps) even garnered a gift from the Emperor of France, Napoleon III. This is where he comes back. It was a brooch with his initials written in diamonds. (laughs) And they possibly had an affair. We'll never know. So that's my favorite affair, the one I I had with Napoleon. (laughs) So she's finally starting to become successful, and she buys a gorgeous seven-room apartment in the heart of Paris. Seven rooms mm -hmm, in Paris. Uh huh. Where Maurice Regine, herself, a few dogs, and two bejeweled turtles had plenty of room. She bejeweled her turtles. I feel like I did that as a kid. Probably. I think it's bad for the turtles, but no, I, <laughs> I didn't bejewel them, but I did put nail polish on like one section of their shell. Yeah. So like if I refound that turtle. Oh, like outside. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say like turtles. We never had turtles in the house because I wouldn't allow it, but. Oh yeah. So outside, like when we found box turtles in our yard, we didn't want to hit them with the lawnmower. So we would move them, but we would bring them up, feed them some lettuce. <gasps> and then I would so put nice. a little bit of nail polish on the back. So I knew if I found it before. Were there turtles in my yard? Yes. Really? Yes. In- Never saw one. Yeah. They eat those little like red, you know, those little red things that grow on your grass. Yeah. They love those. <laughs> All right. Have to look out for them. Well, this you don't. summer. <laughs> they're, um, they're hiding. They're all <laughs> hiding. Everybody's hiding because of COVID. But unfortunately, in 1869, um, her apartment caught on fire and she lost everything, including, including the Napoleon brooch. Don't know. But she saved her family. Apparently, <laughs> again, with her, you have to take it with a grain of salt. She carried her Dutch grandmother down the stairs of the building to safety. I'm super upset about that. But I also am really impressed about it. Yeah. Who carries their grandmother down the steps? I don't know. And she's I, only 5'3". So, I like, she's I not done it. super tall. 
And then she discovered why people buy insurance. Nothing was covered that she lost. So the theater community rallied together and put on a big show to raise money for her. They ended up earning 120,000 francs. <gasps> and she ended up in even a bigger apartment than before. <laughs> so she's back on her feet. Career's going really well. Stars rising. But then the Franco-Prussian War breaks out. And the whole city kind of shuts down, including all the theaters. So she takes charge and she turns the Odeon Theater into a makeshift hospital for the army. A beautiful. I know. She organized the placement of 32 beds in the lobby and beds in the foyer. She brings in her personal chef to prepare soup for the patients. And she persuaded her wealthy friends and admirers to donate supplies for the hospital. Then she started working as a nurse, assisting the chief surgeon Stop with it. amputations Stop. and operations. Amputations. She's like, is she qualified? I don't know. <laughs> and then when the coal supply of the city ran out, she was like, great, burn the scenery, burn the benches, burn the stage props. We're burning everything in here to get these soldiers some heat. I also didn't know, I don't know anything about this war, but apparently it got so bad that they ran out of food. So they had to go to the zoo in Paris and get animals to eat from the zoo. I disagree with that. <laughs> and that should not be a thing because that's literally shooting fish in a barrel. Absolutely not. I hate that. Yeah, not good. Although, how much is like agriculture different from the zoo? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm uncomfortable about all of it. It's too big this, of a conversation for that. Especially now that my daughter is a vegetarian. I'm yeah. very uncomfortable. I don't know what they... Yeah. I'm just so, going to sit here with, with that guilt. Okay. okay. And then when the Germans started closing in on them, she organized a mass exodus of the wounded soldiers and found safe places for all of them, including putting 20 in her own apartment. Thankfully, an armistice deal was eventually reached in 1871 and the war was over. But people didn't forget what Sarah had done for the people of France. And she was really starting to add to her legendary status as like a French icon. After the war, though, she was pretty tired. And she told the director of the Odeon Theater, she was like, look, I'm done with this. I'm going to retire to Brittany. I'm going to start a farm. I'm going to live a quiet life. And he kind of called bullshit. <laughs> he was like, you're not done. You're just being dramatic. So he goes, no, but I have like a, a great new part for you. You have to come and play this part. It was made for you. And she goes, you'll just have to find someone else. I absolutely cannot do it. No way. And he goes, well, I was kind of thinking about giving it to Jane Esler, who was apparently like her rival actress. And apparently upon hearing this, she jumped off the sofa and asked when rehearsals started. <laughs> uh, me too, bitch. Me too. So... Odeon reopens and the theater has returned to a still smoldering Paris. Like <laughs> this is post-war Paris. Like before we even get to like what we think of as post-war Paris, like it's like, rough. This is, this is post-World War II Paris where like their lives have been destroyed. Yeah. There were people tarred and feathered in the street for siding with the Nazis. Yeah. So I don't know what it's like after the Franco-Prussian War, but like. What it, year it was, is it? This is. 
1871. So it's probably like pretty bad. But can you imagine? So they but go they didn't eight- have the airstrikes or anything. No, but so. they go 1871 and then they go 1914 and then they go 1940. Paris had a bad run of it. I can't believe it's still standing. Well, they're so central. Mm-hmm. Like you, France in general is just so central to that like Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. It's it's. I can't believe they still exist. Yeah. It literally is just on the the scruff of their coats. Yeah, that yeah. they're still there. Yeah. So, Odeon reopens. And her next big play is a really big deal because it was written by Victor Hugo, Mm. the famed author of The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables. And there was... Not Alexander Dumas. Not Alexander Dumas. Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo. The other guy. apparently there was a big political thing with Victor Hugo. I didn't understand what was going on. So again, if you're a historian, let me know. But it was a big deal that his plays were coming back to the theater. So she is in a play of his. It's a hit. And after opening night, Hugo himself knelt before her and kissed her hand and thanked her because he was so enamored with her performance. And apparently they also had an affair. Uh, (laughs) I love a good affair. So now she's back on top. Yeah. (laughs) Back on top, living a life of absolute fame and luxury. Men from all over Paris are buying her not only jewelry and clothing and pets (laughs) and lizards, but furniture as well, which would be a dream country because it's so damn expensive. She's like Ethan Allen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Edna Allen. Um, she's also like, okay, I need to like revamp my image. Yes, I was a saint in the war, but people don't come to see saints. They come to see a show. Yeah, they do. So she starts making a reputation for herself as a classic eccentric actress. And it's at this point, she buys herself a nice pine coffin for her bedroom. Stop. Here's a quote from her book, My Double Life. I'm going to give her a mid-Atlantic accent, like a British mid-Atlantic kind of combo because it's so fun. It's more fun. Please. I ordered my first coffin from a dear old carpenter in Belleville. (laughs) At first, I used it as an item of furniture likely to attract attention and become a talking point. Then after another brainwave, I had it fitted with a velvet lining and claimed falsely that I slept in it. When asked for a reason, I came out with the absurd explanation that when I had to die on stage, I slept in the sarcophagus to put me in the mood. I was amazed at how people swallowed that crazy notion. She slept in there to be cuddled. Mm Mm-hmm. And of course, she had herself photographed in the coffin and had that photograph <laughs> distributed to confirm with the residents of Paris that she was indeed a strange and morbid woman. Do you know that my dream job is to be a mortuary? That would be so cool. I didn't know my grandfather was a trained mortician. It's, it's, my, literal, it's my literal dream job. That would be really cool. And I wouldn't have to talk to anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And as she would later travel the world with, quote, no less than 60 suitcases, she would also take the coffin with her, Mm. according to her book. And she claims that she did indeed have sex in it once with, I kid you not, a bullfighter she met in Havana, Cuba. 
If you can have <laughs> sex in a coffin with a bullfighter, congratulations. She describes it in great detail. Was in it missionary, her missionary style? Uh, she was on top. <gasps> Cal- no, Calgary. I know that. <laughs> I know that because she described it. Oh, my God. She literally starts out the section. <laughs> if I could lay a man in a coffin. <laughs> oh, my God. This is it. the best opening line I've ever heard. Have I really fucked in the coffin? <laughs> well, in Havana, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and, Havana, she goes off, and she tells this story and it literally goes on. The bullfighter is like in her apartment and he goes like, have you ever fucked in it? And she goes, nah, it's, it's too narrow. And he goes, I have pretty narrow hips. <laughs> and they had sex in the coffin. Listen, I do understand the knee spread that's needed <laughs> It, top, but I like that is obsessed. let me tell you I was it, it was really intense reading it I highly recommend it so <laughs> oh, she yeah. was one of the first celebrities to really to take the notion <laughs> maybe <laughs> that too um she's like I will do one better than Mary Shelley other than um, Dracula <laughs> other than Dracula other than Dracula. Dracula also comes up in this story oh my god we're still going <laughs> <laughs> page six Page six. <laughs> so <laughs> she decides that she is going to adopt the notion that all press is good press. And she really is the first celebrity to roll with that. She loved spreading insane rumors about herself. <laughs> but anyways, back to Paris. <laughs> she is making a splash at the Odeon and she's becoming really popular. And La Comédie Francaise who fired her all those years before, decided that they want her back. And they steal her away for lots of money. I don't know how much, but it was lots. Lots of. Mm -hmm. So she's on stage at La Comédie Francaise, back in where she first started. She's getting rave reviews. She's running the shit. But then her sister, Regine, her dear little sister, who she had basically raised dies suddenly and the story goes that while she was waiting for the mortician to arrive to take her sister's body away she took a nap and because she wanted regine to be comfortable she put her in her bed and sarah took a nap in the coffin stop that's inappropriate and they took sarah out of the apartment in the coffin stop and she woke up when they got outside. <laughs> so they're literally in the streets of Paris. And she's like, bah! And she jumps out of the car. <laughs> which is- was horrifying for everyone involved. That is squid game shit. I- Horrible. No, I-, I hate that. Horrible. What? Okay. Who so- moves a dead body out of a coffin? Who's like, well, that body looks dead. But this person's in a coffin, so I'm guessing that they just had their own coffin. So we'll take this one. Who gets in a coffin to sleep when you know there's more terrorists coming? All right. Again. That's on Sarah. That's on Sarah. That's on Sarah. And also, like, it's one of those stories that, like, is it true? I don't know. But it's really fucking fun. So she. I'm really upset. So she decides to throw her grief, because she's obviously really upset, into another artistic endeavor. She starts sculpting. Okay. And she gets very serious about it. She rents this gorgeous studio in the heart of Paris. Is she a good sculptor? Yes, 
actually. Oh, I was I was hoping she was bad at it. No, just the fun of the story. She's incredibly talented. It's unbelievable. And this studio, which she rents, later becomes the studio of Picasso. <laughs> She's surrounded by so many famous people. And apparently she was really fucking good. She is having shows. She's selling almost every piece, every show. And I've, you can still see pictures of her stuff. It's incredible. She does this one. Why is it in museums? It is. Where? I don't know. I don't remember, but it's in museums. (laughs) I want it. So she does this one piece uh, where it's like a flat piece. And it's meant to like sit flat and a woman's face is like coming out of it as if she's coming out of water. Okay. It's unbelievable. Okay. She's so good, especially for a self-taught sculptor. <laughs> it's outrageous. And apparently her stuff is so good that she ends up <laughs> presenting it at the Chicago World's Fair. Stop! In the women's building. <laughs> like Susan B. Anthony probably saw her artwork. I hate her. I hate her so much. Allie just dropped so many pens. So many markers. <laughs> the markers are spilling. I cannot believe that this is the case. Ridiculous. So she's now a professional artist. <laughs> and she thinks, okay, yeah, I'm acting. I'm doing good. I'm sculpting. I'm doing really good. But I haven't done anything crazy recently. And then the perfect opportunity arose. There was to be a hot air balloon, which France loved. Oh, they have the first men and women hot air balloon people. Uh I know that. And they were going to fly around a hot air balloon um, promoting her new show. And after being explicitly told to not get in the hot air balloon by the director at La Comédie Française, she not only got in the balloon, but invited a few friends, and they had champagne and foie gras on the balloon. And apparently it did indeed uh, get caught in a storm. She was safe, but... <laughs> Please! So the Please. director fires her. Well, shut up! Fires her. She's still cool. The higher-ups are like, what are you doing? doing and they are like we're overriding him you're not fired <laughs> come back to us yeah and apparently then her friend wrote a, a like a children's book about their adventure in the hot air balloon with the champagne and it was like a bestseller yeah so cute so she obviously has a lot of clout in france right now but she's hoping to expand that and for a little bit, like the Odeon, or not the Odeon, the um, La Comédie Francaise, it's like under construction. Like, you know, they're not really doing any plays. And a man named Edward Jarrett from London offers her a pretty interesting proposal. He's like, why don't you come to London, do snippets of your best work as a private actress for wealthy Londoners? What? Is that not just being a courtesan? No, because she's literally going in. Like, imagine if you hired, like, a stand-up comedian or, like, an actress for, like, your dinner party. Exactly. That's what she's doing. Got it. So, each performance would pay more than one month salary at La Comédie Française. Okay. And this sells her on it because Sarah fucking loves money. So, she goes to London. She's a huge hit. 
Oscar Wilde is throwing white lilies at her. <laughs> That's a true story. And she's thrilled because she's one of the first actresses to kind of go to a different country. And mind you, they she doesn't speak English, so she's doing all of her stuff in French. And everybody's fine. And everybody with loves it. Ugh. They love it. And she decides that with her newfound extra money, she is going to expand her animal menagerie. She gets a pet cheetah, very Josephine Baker of her, a wolfhound, and a chameleon, which she would wear on her shoulder. Very Rapunzel. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which is funny because there is there was a restaurant in, in our, like my home neighborhood, Larville, Hamilton area, where it was called the Chameleon, and they had a portrait like a painting on the side of the building of like a French woman out to lunch with a chameleon on her shoulder. And now I'm kind of thinking like, I know it's probably not, but it's like such a funny thing that she would do this. She would put the chameleon on her and go out to lunch. It might be her. Like in terms of, it might be her. Yeah. And even though the restaurant is called Maggie's farm now, they, they didn't want to get rid of that, that mural. So it's a big mural on a building. I'll have to take a picture of it. So, Anyways, (laughs) she does these performances. Um, She goes back to Paris and this director of La Comédie Française who hates hot air balloons and hates Sarah Bernhardt is like kind of sick of her because he's like, you think you're fucking better than us? No way. Because, like, she's also like, well, no, I actually can't do a performance on this day because, like, I have a show in London. And he's like, that's not how this works. But he knows that he doesn't have any power in the company because the higher-ups won't let him fire her. So he starts paying journalists to write smear articles about Sarah, calling her a traitor to the people of France. Well, shit. Mm -hmm. And saying that people should really hate her because she is an awful person. She's so terrible. Da-da-da-da-da. But the people of Paris don't buy it. They stand by Sarah. And then Sarah says, kindly accept my resignation. Believe me. Basically telling him, like, I'm not kidding this time. You know what? I'm done with you. Middle finger to the wall. Mm -hmm. So she continues to expand her work with Edward Jarrett. She is traveling a little bit more around Europe. She goes to Copenhagen where the king of Denmark gave her the order of merit. (laughs) just so crazy it's noteworthy 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 and then she gets booked in america (gasps) unbelievable it's so hard to travel Uh thank goodness she wasn't on the titanic (laughs) that's that's later so she's on a boat close enough headed for america this is a huge deal and while she's standing there on the deck something interesting happens she writes in her memoir I met a lady dressed in black with a sad, resigned face. The sea looked gloomy and colorless, and there were no waves. Suddenly, a wild billow dashed so violently against our boat that we were both thrown down. I immediately clutched hold of the leg of one of the benches, but the unfortunate lady was flung forward. Springing to my feet with a bound, I was just in time to seize hold of her dress. And with the help of my maid and a sailor, we managed to prevent the poor woman from falling headfirst on the staircase. Who was she? Very much hurt, though, she was. And a trifle confused, she thanked me in a gentle, dreamy voice that my heart began to beat with emotion. 
You might have been killed, madam, down that horrible staircase. Yes, she answered, with a sigh of regret. But it was not God's will. She said, well, I'm Sarah Bernhardt, ma'am. And she goes, I'm the widow of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Fucking Mary Todd. She did not save Mary Todd Lincoln from dying on a boat. <laughs> Apparently she did. Fuck. Oh and we God. And we can prove that they were on the same boat at the same, like they were on the same trip. I'm not surprised that Mary Todd Lincoln <laughs> would be standing on a balcony like. Like wanting to die. Take like me, Storm. Take me. This story is out of control. Every time. Every time it's out of control. What are we even doing here? I don't know. So <laughs> she gets to America with great fanfare. Of course. People are really excited to see this incredibly famous Parisian actress. And while on tour, she makes sure to bring out all the stops performing her very best death scenes. She is getting paid $1,000 per show. Me too plus <laughs> half of the ticket sales mm. and she always insisted on being paid in cash she also had food clothing outings transportation lodging whatever paid for for her and her best friend madame gerard can you imagine the payoff for madame gerard being like oh, yeah it was nice to you when you were like a bratty teenager and i'm going to fucking america on a private train this i feel incredible. like if you drink together you live together it's come fine. on she went to over 50 cities in seven months and again on her own private train like other trains had to reroute to make room for sarah which i don't even know how that's possible because they're on a track there's only so many tracks that's what my uncle did for a living you don't shift the track don't understand if that there's a big lever love it so we know that Charlotte Cushman, like we said earlier, was the first celebrity in the U.S., but Sarah Bernhardt is the first international celebrity. People love her. They are leaving her performances weeping. <laughs> weeping? Weeping, or sobbing, bawling, bawling, bawling sobbing, all weeping. of oh, it. <laughs> they, and they, and this again, they can't understand what she's saying because she's speaking French and they're still so moved by her performances. Oh my God, it's like me and Moonlight. So she comes back to Europe. Heads of countries are paying their respects from her. She's going all over Europe to all these countries. Tsar Alexander III breaks protocol in the middle of a theater in Moscow, stands up and bows to her. Stop it. I know. Get back in your seat, Alexander. You're about to die. Mm -hmm. And also keep in mind, like, she's also like, since she's traveling all throughout Europe, she's also like going through countries and like areas where people are throwing stones at her because she's a Jewish woman. There's a lot of anti-Semitism going on. Like, they don't like that she is a wealthy Jewish Still, woman at the and time. Now and then. Always. And always. It's, like, ridiculous. Right. And then she gets married. Yes. Just now? The famous Sarah Bernhardt, darling of the international stage, queen of America, daughter of a courtesan, is married. To who? A fellow actor named Jacques Damala. I like him. Jackie boy. Don't like him. He's horrible. Oh, he's terrible. This confused everyone. Maurice, her son, hated him. Fellow actors despised him. Why'd they refused to Jacques work then? with him. Why'd she marry Jacques? He was a gambling addict, a morphine addict, an alcoholic. 
and an anti-Semite. Why is she with him? I don't know. I just like don't understand how this relationship works at all because like she is a Jewish woman. Do you think like she just wanted to get married? No, I think there was like a weird pool. Like I, I think she literal I don't know it's weird I hate that for her and like no but this is the whole thing people back then didn't understand it so there's no way we will there's no way we will he would call her derogatory Jewish (gasps) terms I don't like that he hated that she was more famous than him Mm. and got back at her by openly cheating on her well, keep in mind, she is financially supporting him. I hate this. What is... Why? I know. I know. Why? It's like she was doing so good and like this weird thing happens. And her work is suffering because of him. She is not giving her typical high caliber performances because she's so distracted by her awful marriage. And sometimes he would personally fuck up her f- performances. Like the time he got really messed up on morphine and just marched onto the stage and took her dress off on stage. And she was like nearly naked. Like her butt was exposed to the audience in the eh, sorry, 1800s. Like this is not okay. No, 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 no. It's never okay to be like forcibly, nude. forcibly nude in front of people. This guy was apparently such a dick that Bram Stoker, another friend of, <laughs> Sarah's Dracula boy (laughs) said that this guy was one of the inspirations for Dracula. Oh, he's like a Percy Shelley shit. This guy is the worst. And after uh, like eight months of this, Sarah told him, she goes, look, this is not working out. I'm going to cut you off financially. So he throws a fit and he runs away to North Africa, (laughs) leaving Sarah alone with all of his debts because they never actually get divorced. So she's stuck with his debts for all the drugs and the alcohol and the sex workers. Like all these debt collectors are coming after her being like, Hey, he never paid up for like this, like sex worker that he hired like two weeks ago. And she's like, great. Like this cool. fucking not my sucks. problem. No, not my problem. So she's Fuck stuck. You. She's stuck with all this debt. And they never actually divorce, but he just kind of like he comes back briefly and then she's like, get the fuck out of here. And he goes away again. But yeah, I don't think they ever actually divorced. Like they were just separated. And then he like had an early death and that was basically it. It was much harder to get divorced back then. It really was. It was. Um, It was just really shitty all around. So and then to make matters worse during this really hard time period, a scandalous book was published about her. By a former friend, someone who grew up in the convent with her. Gross. She's like a childhood friend. And Sarah is like, I am at like, pers- like professionally, I'm at the top of the charts. Nothing can hit me. Like nothing can touch me. But personally, she was having a really fucking hard time. And then one of her oldest friends writes this like book about like Sarah Bernhardt isn't who you think she is, you know, and like to make their own fucking money. I hate that. Yeah. And Sarah responded by going to this woman's apartment and just destroying it. Like took a knife, ripped up her curtains, ripped up her sheets, like put holes in her couch. Like she was not fucking around. Um, and like it got out and it wasn't the best press. And this is like, not even all press is good press. Like this was 
bad. Bad press. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to kind of zoom through a lot of a couple of years. So she keeps working. She's touring. She's traveling the world. She goes to Brazil, the aforementioned Havana. <laughs> she apparently inspires like women's rights in South America. How I don't know. That was like, not? I was literally done my research. And then I saw on her Wikipedia page, like Sarah and women's rights in Brazil. I, was like, I can't even look at that. I can't even look at that. I'm so obsessed with it. I can't. I know. Um, she's playing all sorts of characters like Cleopatra, Queen Elizabeth, but she makes a particular splash playing Joan of Arc. Even though she is now a middle-aged woman. She is 45 playing the teenager that is Joan of Arc. I mean, somebody has to do it. Somebody's got to do it. But she is such a talented actress that she makes kind of a joke out of it. So there's a particular scene in the play where it's like the trial of Joan of Arc, and they go, state your age. And Sarah Evernight would look at the audience and kind of wink and go, of course I'm 19. Because they knew she was 45. <laughs> like, they knew she was middle-aged. Right. But she was like, no, the way to get ahead of this is to just be in on it. And like, yes, I'm playing a 19-year-old at 45, but like, what the fuck ever? Like, who cares? <laughs> who this cares? stage acting. We can do what we want here. Exactly. But this production in particular and her age were coming with some complications you know, her body is kind of giving way. And all of those scenes where Joan is praying on her knees and getting up and getting down and kneeling with a flag, it starts to get to Sarah. She is not the spry young actress that she used to be. And like all those dramatic death scenes where she's falling down and getting hurt, it's all catching up to her. And she starts to have some real problems with her knees. But, you know, she's still acting. She's making her side hustle. This is around the time where she goes to the Chicago World's Fair. Um, and she's like, okay, well, if I can't like do every play, I'll step into more of a production role. And she finds that she really enjoys the backstage stuff. So in 1893, she paid 700,000 francs for the theater de la Renaissance. And she basically buys this theater and she becomes its artistic director and lead actress. She managed every aspect of the theater, from the finances to the lighting to the sets, the costumes, as well as appearing in eight performances a week. She also wanted to redesign the client experience, the audience experience. Mm. She imposed a rule that women in the audience, no matter who they were, how wealthy they were, how famous they were, they had to take their hats off. Because... Women's hats are fucking huge during this time. And she goes, the rest of the audience can't see behind you. So she says, take your fucking hat off. She also decides that she's going to demand more of her actors. And she eliminates the prompters box from the stage, which were like, you know, things where like people could see their lines. Right. She goes, you should know your lines. You are here to do a job and I want you to do it right. Learn Learn your fucking lines. Good for her. But... Uh, the nine plays she produced, there were only like three really financially successful ones. And in 1899, her debts are rising and the theater had to close down. But instead of moving her company and her ideas to a smaller venue, she buys a bigger one and names it Theater de Sarah Bernhardt. <laughs> and so she opens up a newer, bigger theater. She's also getting into silent movies. <laughs> 
She's like, yeah, anything new, I will fucking she do it. Like I the am gamut. in. She's spinning the gamut. So she's like, silent movies. Love this thing. Love what's going on. You know what? I'm going to do something special. I'm going to play Hamlet. And she <laughs> is in like the first film of Hamlet. And she plays Hamlet, which is like, Again, like the first of its kind. It's so crazy. And she goes on to star in a lot of silent films, making her one of the earliest silent film stars in Paris. I can't believe that. Then in true Sarah Bernhardt fashion, when she is 50 years old, she buys herself a castle on the coast of France. Well, technically, it's, it, it's, a, it's a fort, technically, but it's this very old, stoic, cool fort that looks like a castle. And she flies a flag above the castle with her signature catchphrase, condemn, which means something along the lines, like it's kind of one of those phrases that's like widely interpreted, but it kind of just means like all the same, I'm <laughs> whatever I'm here, I'm Who doing is? it. So, so. And of course she threw some banging parties, even At her hosting castle? King Edward the seventh. She was also technically the first Cribs star. <laughs> they made a documentary of her house in 1915, which was the first example of a celebrity welcoming a film crew into their home. Cribs. So between 1901 and 1913, she goes on a crazy string of farewell tours across the world. And by the end of it, it's kind of why she realizes she needs to retire. She's in really rough shape physically. You know how her knees were bothering her back when she was 45? Well, it's gotten way worse. I mean, death scenes can be a real killer, especially when the crew forgets to put the mattress on the stage for your jumping out of the window scene. No! Mm-hmm. That happened to her. That happened to her. So she jumped out of a window thinking a mattress was there and, and there's no the mattress. Floor. So... In 1915, she discovers that her really badly injured leg has now developed gangrene. Mm. So she calls up an old lover of hers, like you're one to do, and says, Honey, I'm sorry to ask you this, but you need to chop off my fucking leg. So in 1915, she has her leg amputated. Uh, but her ex-boyfriend couldn't do it. He couldn't handle it. So he gets one of his like friends to do it. But the deed is done. She gets her leg amputated, but she refuses the idea of an artificial leg, crutches, or a wheelchair. And instead, she's... Hops around? No, she's carried in a palanquin. She designed herself, which is one of those, like, old, like, Cleopatra, like, carts where, like, four men hoist you up and carry you around. Stop. She had the chair decorated in the Louis the Fifth so style. It had white sides and gold trim. What is she doing? And if you thought that her, you know, farewell tour and having her leg amputated would stop her from performing, you would be dead wrong. (laughs) She went back to the stage playing all of her iconic roles, but just tweaked the performances and the sets a little bit. Less of a leg. You know, Cleopatra loved a chaise lounge even more than we originally thought. (laughs) 
I always thought Cleopatra loved to shoot his lounge. So she's honestly. literally doing the entire play from a lounge chair, and it's just kind of moving your shoulders, like <laughs> shimmying around. I love a shimmy shoulder. God, she's the best. <laughs> but it wasn't long since she was back on the stage before Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated and war broke out in yeah. Europe again. We know Sarah really feels strongly about war. So she wasn't going to let anything stop her from helping in any way that she could. So she decided that if she couldn't cook food or be a nurse, like in the old days, she would boost morale. So imagine the beginning scene of White Christmas, a literal war zone. Mm. But instead of Bing Crosby, it is Sarah. And she would go to these, like, again, smoldering war sites, and she would recite patriotic poetry to the troops to encourage them and i think it meant a lot to them because like this is an amputee this is a woman who is openly being like i have one leg and like their world war one was a horrible war for ant like a lot of people lost limbs and body parts and faces and faces like this was a war that people saw this all the time so yeah. then i think it was kind of encouraging to be like there's a woman, fu- a woman fucking doing it after this tragedy. Like, it really did boost morale. Good for her. She also hosted benefits to raise money for the war effort. And then in 1916, she went to America again to try and convince people to, for America to join the war effort. She to goes, fucking you care? To, you need fucking to fucking care? help us. Help. Thank you. Help. They did in 1917. Mm. And... Uh, Sarah was finally home in Paris in 1918 when the war had ended. And soon, Sarah is on the stage and in the movies again, carefully maneuvering around chairs or propping herself up on stage if the scene required a standing monologue. (laughs) This woman could not be stopped. But then in 1923, she was rehearsing for a play and preparing for a movie, and she started to have some pain. 1923? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really long fucking life. I'm very confused by it. Not in her legs or her joints or anything, but her kidneys. They were shutting down. Oh, no. So she is laying in her Parisian apartment, and she's slowly dying when she hears noises outside of her apartment. It is a field of reporters and fans and news crews outside in the streets just waiting to see what would happen to the great Sarah Bernhardt. And she laughed and said, I'll keep them dangling. They've tortured me all my life. Now I'll torture them. Those are her last words. And she passed away on March 26, 1923, at the age of 78. Upon hearing the news of her death, her theater stopped mid-performance closed the curtain and everyone filed out in complete silence and walked to her house to pay their final respects. And on the day of her funeral, half a million people lined the streets of Paris. After such an incredible life, we will simply end on a quote from Mark Twain, who's another person who was a part of her life. (laughs) There are five kinds of actresses, bad actresses, Fair actresses, good actresses, great actresses, and Sarah Bernhardt. Oh. <laughs>
And that's the story of international superstar Sarah Bernhardt. I love her so much. Me too. And I'd never heard of her. I was like, this is an unbelievable story. What What the fuck? What a great start. And, you know, I was looking for someone because, you know, I was like, we don't get a whole ton of, like, amputees. Like, I was thinking about that because, like, Tammy Duckworth was one of the first, like, amputees we did. And I was like, who else has a story like this? And this Sarah Bernhardt came up. I was like... She is a huge person. Like, what the hell? She She's has a, amazing. She also has a star on the Hollywood Walk oh, of Fame. What I the hell? Her. I love her. <sighs> I, that story was turn for turn. <laughs> just everything was amazing. And I think I just, I mean, from the time she was born to the time she died yeah. is just an incredible change in just like the culture of the world. Yeah. Well, and I also, I really appreciate that she was changing with it. She goes, mm. okay, you want to do that? I'm all for it. I'm here for the films. Mm. I'm here. Like silent films, talkies. I bring me along. She would have done it all. Mm. So now we need to talk about these two women slash all of them. I guess in your case, there's a lot of women affected. Lots of women. Um, in a little segment we like to call just, just the two of us. I feel like <laughs> this, these stories don't have a lot like that are insanely a common, but I feel like we can stretch. No, I mean, I, I, I saw a lot of common allies in the very beginning where like, I feel like a lot of the things of like, one of the first things you said was that, Puritans during your time period, during the time period of Abigail Williams, kind of thought that children were inherently bad. And there was this idea that, like, they were like, well, we just have to beat them. And I felt like that was how Sarah's mother was, was like, she's bad. She's in my way. But instead of beating her, she just, like, abandoned her. Yeah, and I also felt like in terms of children, like, very early on, there were, like, this, I need to make up stories type yeah. idea. And... As I said earlier, I personally believe that these girls were making up stories in order to protect themselves from the, yeah. the larger society. Well, it was their only kind of uh, power. You know, like we talked a lot about women not having power. And I do think that like for Sarah and women like her, that was one of the only ways. And like Sarah as a child felt so out of power. She was being left with people she's being transferred to school to school to school and then it was like she was acting out just like these girls did because i think she felt like she had no voice and no power but thankfully for sarah there were people looking out for her and i don't think that abigail and these other girls like exactly had that and not to exonerate abigail because i think what she did was fucked up terrible she was old enough to like if it happened the first time and she saw it she should have been like, oh, I shouldn't do that again. And she chose to do it again, right. which I, is messed I, up. I felt a lot when I was thinking about the Nasser case, mm. like when I was reading this, because I think that there are a lot of people that don't trust young women. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't blame that on people like Abigail, but it's like if a girl does something once and it's not truthful, then it's for all humanity to think. Yeah. And then it's like if a boy from Yale rapes somebody once it's like oh it's fine right and then it's, it's like, like that's the anomaly right and yeah. it's like if a girl says anything she's lying yeah. and it's like well there literally this week there were settlements in the Nasser case yeah. this week this week young girls for years have been being being treated 
unfairly by this man and people knew about it and let it go. Yeah. And it's almost like, unfortunately, the people in Salem were using these girls' truths to fight their own battles. Yeah. Which is so shitty because it's the exact opposite of present day reality. Yeah. Well, because and if you listened to our break when Allie read all the names, and I think it's so important that you read why they were killed. Some of it was like, oh, like she was a, she came and asked me for money sometimes. So like I accused her of witchcraft or like this or that, or like, you know, they were just annoying to me. So you're right. It's, we talked about this in the, um, in the, or the, the bombing episode, the, right. the sixth street bombing episode yeah. where it was like, why does all of this all, why do all of adults problems fall on children? Cause it kind of felt like. Maybe what happened in Salem, like we were, we were talking about this privately, but like maybe what happened was like parents were talking shit about their neighbors and like, God, I wish they would just go away. And like kids internalize that shit. It's like, okay. They listen to you. I know of a way. Right. And I think it's um like a disgusting self-feeding monster. And I think that and for your parents to feel like they're proud of you because you are the voice of God in this terrible community where witches exist. Yeah. Can you imagine how proud that makes them? You're like the quarterback of the football team. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, I kind of want to talk about um, male power figures because we have kind of interesting combating ones. You have men in power in Salem, like the governor of Salem or Massachusetts or whoever it was, mm-hmm. who was able to stop it in a day, in a day. He had that power all along. I don't believe he didn't know what was going on. Oh, he knew. He absolutely knew. But until it affected him personally, he wasn't going to do a shit about it. So you have him who had the power, chose not to use it. And then he had the Duke de Mornay. They had, the women who, around Sarah were fucking cool. The men and women around Sarah. I mean, her yeah. mom was a shit. Her mom was a shitbag. But like the, the the guys, the Duke and Dumas and like <laughs> and Victor Hugo, like everyone was like in Sarah's Wait, and corner. Victor Hugo, he wrote Around the World in 80 Days, right? Mm, I don't remember. I think that he Maybe might he have did. been the inspiration of the Nellie Bly story. I'm pretty sure that's who Victor Hugo is. I know that he wrote Limes and um, Hunchback of Notre Dame, but that's all I know about him. I mean, they're very famous men. Very, very famous men. But if you think about the Duke de Mornay, he was like, oh, I have power and I could make this girl's life better. And I just feel like the governor of Massachusetts had the opportunity to make people's lives better and stop the mayhem, but he didn't do that. And it's like, it's really also, upsetting to me what what people in charge choose to do with their power. It's also sad because there are a lot of men that spoke out against the witch trials and then all of them got hung as well. Mm. That was another thing that shocked me when you were reading the list of like, there were a couple people who were just like disagreed with the witch trials. Then they were accused and hung as witches. Right. Not like ousted from society, actually killed, killed. Like, because they said, I don't think this is right. Yeah. Well, and, like, I think that we can look at a parallel of, like, how far we have come in from literally the 1600s to the 1800s where, like, Sarah had a lot of sponsorship, but she also stood up for herself. Like, Mm. when her sister was hit, she stood up for her and called that woman a bitch and she got fired. 
And she could have kept her job if she apologized, but she chose not to. Right. Because she was like, no, I saw an injustice and I said something Mm. and that was fucked up. And, you know, when the guy was mad at her for going on a hot air balloon ride and doing shows in in like London, she was like, no, I'm going to stand up for myself. I'm not going to to just let this happen you know i just feel like the um it's because of people getting fucked over by power structures from all throughout history that like it did get slowly and surely better it did and i just i think sarah and abigail have a very similar personality yes it's just unfortunate that abigail at age 11 was in a society where people they used her. Mm-hmm. She was used. That's uh, yeah, what I yeah. want to say. Like she was used to prove the points that they wanted to prove. Yeah. And that's unfair to her. And it's why, you know what? Maybe she never issued an apology in her life, but she was a child. She was also used and abused. She was yeah. eleven. And she was an orphan. And Sarah was kind of an orphan. Like yes. these were two girls who felt abandoned and I think that that's also why they kind of acted out and I bring me daddy Warbucks and I know that we don't have any proof of this but like I wouldn't be surprised if Abigail was abused by John by John Proctor or just some other man in power I just like Arthur Miller's play is all about John Proctor and 17-year-old Winona Ryder having this affair, this sexy affair. And it's like, she's 11, he's 60. If you think there's a relationship, don't make Abigail the villain. Mm-hmm. He made her the villain. Yeah. yeah. He was married to freaking Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. It's I just, just, why was that his choice? If you had to choose mm-hmm. in this, in this player writing... And you knew somebody's 11 and you knew someone's 60. He chose to make her. She's the most hated villain in all of like play fiction. Yeah. Why did he choose that? He could have chosen to make John Proctor an assaulter. Yeah. Arthur Miller made a choice and he's changed our entire perspective on the witch trials. Yeah. He made the girl the bad guy. With one simple decision. And I think it's to interesting make that um, because of the existence of the crucible in your story, we have roots in theater and we see how theater changes perspective and people and culture. And like Sarah Bernhardt changed people's minds with theater. She changed people's minds about what amputees could do, which I think is an incredible positive. And then you're right. You have Arthur Miller who chose to take it in the negative route. Especially because two weeks ago, mm-hmm. you talked about the Rockettes, where we have our first Rockette that does not have a hand. Yeah. And how important that is. And that's the 2000s. Yeah. Okay. All right. Are you ready to toast? I'm ready. Who would you like to toast this evening? So tonight, there are two people that I, or two ideas I want to toast. First, I want to toast to anyone that has ever taken the blame mm. for Something that they didn't do. Yeah. Because I know, especially in the prison system in the United States, we have a large majority of black males that even if they did something, they 
did the same thing that other people did and got a further punishment and it is just not okay. Yeah. I mean, they're in prison for things that now like a lot of white people are making millions off of like, if we're talking about like the marijuana business, right? Exactly. It's so upsetting. Exactly. And it's just a very not okay. So just an honest toast to the people who are literally in prison for something that they didn't do or they did do. And they're getting a bigger, punishment punishment than they should and then my second toast is for anyone who feels like they need to be screaming because they're not being heard yeah because i think like both sarah and abigail as misguided as abigail was Mm -hmm. was screaming because no one would hear her yeah and those are my toasts obviously more to the imprisoned people yeah cheers So I'm going to toast women who overcome difficult parents. I, I hate that Sarah's mother was such an asshole to Mm. her. Mm. And I love that Sarah though rose above it and that Sarah kept rising above people telling her that she shouldn't be doing what she was doing. Like I was shocked at how long it took for her to not only get good reviews, but just to get over her stage fright and be decent on stage. I just love her. That is really intense, and it's a really hard thing to do. So to people who overcome, you know, I'm reading a book right now that one of the sections is on, like, reparenting, which I know a lot of people have to deal with, where it's like like a lot of people are parented by children themselves, like, or people who act like children, no matter how old they are. And mm-hmm. it's like you... Sometimes I have to reparent yourselves. And I feel like Sarah did that. And I feel like she did a hell of a job for it. And hell like, yeah. you know, I just love that she ended up having a son, Maurice, who stood up for her and literally rejected this very wealthy, very fancy man because he was proud of who his mother was. And I Crazy fucking love that. Maurice. Crazy old Maurice. So to people who overcome, I think you're Cheers. incredible. Cheers. So everybody, please find us. We are on all. Oh, the we social- need to do pop plugs. Oh right. <laughs> oh, I have a pop. I plug. know it's been two weeks since we have had an episode. Oh, you want to know my pop plug? Yeah, I want to know what you've been enjoying in pop culture this week. Billy Bird. What is Billy Bird? Okay, so I was okay. <laughs> I love a Christmas movie. Me too. And with my kids, I watched uh, Home Alone, obviously, because mm-hmm. we do we do the Christmas genre every year. Mm-hmm. And you know when um, Catherine O'Hara is in the airport, like trying to get home, she's selling yes. her shit, and the old man's like the dangly one. He's <laughs> talking about the earrings. Yes. You know what I'm talking about that woman is Billy Bird. Mm-hmm. But then also, I was watching Ernest Saves Christmas, <laughs> and Billy Bird is also in that movie. Oh, and like I was like sitting there watching with the girls, and I was like, I know that woman. She's the dangly ones, mm-hmm. and I was like, I know her. So I googled her, and apparently, she was born in America in the 30s, became a vaudeville star, and then went on to be like a comedic actress, and was in Ernest Saves Christmas and Home Alone. <laughs> amazing and i was like billy bird and then i googled her she died in like the 2000s and i was just like 
fascinated by her story. The fact that she's in these famous Christmas movies, people don't know who she is. And I, I was like all night Googling <laughs> Billy Bird because she's so cute. And on one scene, she, she turns to the camera and talks about Santa. And I was like, I know her. Yeah. She's from Home Alone. And then Jake and I were doing the IMDb. Oh, and I it's love the same that. woman. I love that. The same. So Billy Bird, she's a beautiful, amazing aged actress who died in the 2000s, but was born in the United States and became a vaudeville star and then just did comedic roles for the rest of her career. Love that. And she's so cute. I'm going to so show great. you pictures of her in a minute. Please do. But go ahead and do what you have to say. Okay. <laughs> Mine is on the other side. So Casey and I have been watching. Wait, I'm just going to stop. <gasps> She's so cute. Is she not the cutest woman you've oh, ever my seen? Gosh. You know, it's funny. I did a same rabbit hole with Isla Fisher today. <laughs> of course. Because she posted something about like, 20 years together with Sasha Barra Cohen, oh, a.k.a. Forever. Bora. Yeah, they've, they've been married forever. They've been together. They've been married for 10 years and together for 20 years. I do want to say on the Oscars last year, I was offended for him. Yeah. Did you see that? No, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> so his, I just jumped on it. His movie was nominated for an Oscar and they went around and everybody that was like given a compliment they were all on like zoom and they gave everybody a compliment and his compliment was like, we're surprised you're here. Oh fuck. That's and not he's right. standing with Isla Fisher and both of them were like, no, we, we fucking also got nominated for an Oscar. You piece of shit. It was like, I felt uncomfortable watching it. Oh, that's really I upsetting. I hope you go back and watch yeah, it. Yeah, I will. It was really torturesome. Um, but yeah, maybe I'm going to save mine for next week because I actually haven't finished that show yet. So stay tuned. Then be able to recommend Isla Fisher because I also didn't realize she was born in like the Arabian Peninsula because her dad worked for the UN. So she was like born in like the Arabian Peninsula, has like converted to Judaism for Sasha Barra Cohen, has been like literally practice like they practice like she is like, yeah, we hold Seder every Friday and like or not Seder. Uh, Sabbath. Sabbath. Every Friday, like, really do it. And they have been together for 20 years, oh, which yeah. is unbelievable They're to me. They're so in love. I They're love so it. They're so in love. It's so cute. So, yeah. So, if you recommend Birdie Bird, what is her name? Billy Bird. Billy Bird. I'll recommend Isla Fisher. Just two women that are cool. Look them up. Look them up. Maybe I just, we'll do episodes it's on It's one them. of those things Who knows? where <laughs> I, was, I was shocked. Yeah. And I love seeing a woman where I'm like, I've seen her before mm -hmm. and now I want to know her story, which yep. is our, the whole point of our show, honestly. Yep. So we're, are we just promoting ourselves? Probably. Okay. Well, it's kind of like how I felt with um, Steve's mom hmm. from Sex and the City. I was like, Steve's oh shit. mom has got it going on. She's fucking married to Frank Costanza. Yeah, She's exactly. the mother of Ben Stiller. Like what the hell? Yeah. I love it. So really, I, th <laughs> really I think I'm promoting IMDb. Well, find us everywhere. <laughs> please do. Um, find all of our Meryl Streep drama. <laughs> well, actually, on Patreon, we're going to have a quite a cute night. Ooh, I'm wait. excited. So if you want to hear what we're about to talk about, well, we're going to talk Patreon. about a thing with my best friend so that you I understand. Can't and then I also wait. have a present for our studio. What? That's really exciting. <laughs> okay. We, we love you so much. We'll see you soon. Yep. Wait. <laughs> What we did so we have two more oh, things oh oh rate and review us on apple podcast and never forget that well-behaved women <laughs>
Remember, I have a whole thing. Okay. Oh, well-behaved women remember the date and time of their doctor's appointments. That's true. And they rarely make history. <laughs> Goodbye. Listening to her story on the rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.